That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I would say that I'm a purist in that, you know, I don't... I. I know why the designated hitter makes sense. I know it it makes baseball more exciting. Nobody wants to see the pitcher hit over and over in a major league game. I get it, but I'm a purist. I'm a throwback. I'm a National League guy. I like uh, the strategy that was involved with uh, National League managers having to account for the pitcher's spot in the lineup coming up. I also believe that uh, the Rose Bowl... And the nostalgia of the Rose Bowl, Keith Jackson, your your grandfather's Rose Bowl. I, I'm sad about the fact that we had to see Alabama and Michigan play in that game this year. Like, you know, I'm a maybe I'm a throwback, maybe I'm a purist. But, uh, you know, I, I had thought about this when the Rose Bowl game was on, and I said, you know, this should just be the national championship venue. Kirk Herbstreet tweeted that out as well. Others on the broadcast saying this should be the thing. The beauty of the Rose Bowl is you get to watch the uh, the game in the daylight. Then you watch the sunset as the third or fourth quarter is beginning. There's some nostalgia to it. J.J. Watt joining the chorus of people who believe that the Rose Bowl should be the national championship game. Listen to J.J. I mean, there is something about that place, about the stadium, about the sunset, about the mountains, the atmosphere, the vibe, like... The game feels significantly bigger in that environment. Even the game that played right after it, the same significance to go to the national championship, phenomenal atmosphere, phenomenal game. The Superdome is an unbelievable place, and I know it was loud as hell in there, but the, it just doesn't feel the same when you're watching it. Like When you are watching the Rose Bowl, you, feel, you remember that Vince Young game against mm-hmm. the USC. You remember all those big moments. There's just something special about that place, and I think holding the national championship game there every single year would be very, very fitting for a game that is losing a lot of its, you know, history and tradition in college football. Let's let's hold on to one thing. I'm nodding my head as J.J. Watt is spitting truth. The granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl, first played on January the first, nineteen o two. Michigan played in that game, by the way, beat Stanford forty nine zip. It became the centerpiece of the Tournament of Rose that was put on. It started really in the late 1800s. So you've got this great history, this great venue, this great stadium. I have a personal connection with the Rose Bowl. My grandfather, I can remember growing up hearing stories about the Rose Bowl and how much that mattered to him and how much that factored in his life. And I grew up watching those games on television. And I've told this story before, like, my grandfather was, you know, they, you talk about an Italian immigrant family settling on the East Coast. My grandfather, his brother, his dad, the whole family working in the steel mill in the foundry in suburban uh, Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania after they immigrated from Italy. Uh, grandfather's family just kind of there, and that was making it. They were in America, 
And my grandpa was a Pitt fan, all right? So he rooted for Pitt. And in 1930, Pitt qualified for the Rose Bowl. And my grandfather was a 20-year-old man in 1930. And I grew up hearing this story. He and some friends, like maybe you and your friends would do when your favorite team's playing a game, decided they were going to head out and they were going to make the 1930 Rose Bowl. Like they were going to make the journey. And, you know, they Pitt's playing USC in the Rose Bowl. This is going to be in sunny California. Get out of the snow. And my grandfather and his friends set out on foot. They hopped on trains. They hitchhiked. They made their way across the country trying to make that 1930 Rose Bowl game. And my grandfather tells the story. They were even detained one time because they jumped on the president's train. Like they didn't know the president was on board. And so the Secret Service when the police detained them, thinking like they were trying to assassinate the president. And, you know, he had to work odd jobs. They got delayed. He had one friend who got homesick and turned back. He ended up, uh, you know, having to fake his way across the country, taking odd jobs. He, knew, he didn't know how to, how to harvest wheat. He told a farmer, yeah, sure, we've done it many times. And they went out and worked a day to make a wage harvesting, harvesting the wheat. And my grandfather finally rolled into Pasadena. He missed the Rose Bowl game. He missed it by two days. He finally rolled into Pasadena. He got to see, like, the cherry blossoms. He said, I couldn't believe there were cherry blossoms on trees in January in Southern California. And he filed that away in his memory. He ended up going back home, didn't make the Rose Bowl, but it was a fond journey and a fond story and a memory to him. I remember his uh, the story ended with his mother sending him enough money for bus fare home and uh, he got the bus fare, uh, got the bus ticket, and then he tried to exchange it for cash, and the person told him, your mother is too smart. She made this non-refundable. You can't exchange this for cash. He ended up having to take the bus home. He rode uh, that bus uh, across the country back and ended up back in Pennsylvania, but it's partly why I exist the Rose Bowl. Why? Because my grandfather, years later, after he had a family of his own, he said, I need to go west. I need to get out of this, the mill and the foundry. Uh, you know, he's looking around. Everybody was dying young. They had silicosis in their lungs. And he said he's taking his family west. And of course, my father is born on the west coast, meets my mother. I exist because of the Rose Bowl. You could say that the Rose Bowl is important in your household, but I don't think I'd be on this radio show if the Rose Bowl hadn't happened. Game doesn't matter. I keep hearing people say that. The Bulls don't matter. The Rose Bowl matters. Matters to me. Should matter to you. I think J.J. Watt's got a great idea. But on that note, I want to open up the phone lines. I want you to tell me what sports suggestion would you stick in the suggestion box because jj watt is essentially saying okay every year the national championship game should be the rose bowl this expanded 12 team playoff it should be the road to the rose bowl every year this is how it should go putting it in the suggestion box along with kirk herbstreet and others but what suggestion do you have for the sports world what do you want to see played how do you want to see uh what do you want to see changed do you want to see uh, football in the NFL limited to certain days of the week? Do you want to see expansion in Major League Baseball that brings a team to Portland? Do you want to see rule changes in the NFL, college football? Do you want to see the playoff or college football itself splinter away? You tell me, 503-417-7575. Suggestion box is open. J.J. Watt has taken the first shot. He's put the first suggestion into the box 
He's saying Rose Bowl National Championship game every year. But I want to hear from you. What suggestion do you have as it pertains to sports and, you know, things that could be better? Let's make sports better. We'll start with Charlie in Vancouver, but I want you to line up right behind him. Charlie, what do you got? John, I'm so glad you asked that question because what needs to be done, obviously the transfer portal is killing college football as far as the Bulls and leaving early and all that kind of stuff. Here's how we do it, John. What is every third commercial that we see now? It's either either DraftKings or it's uh, alcohol and insurance, and insurance is the key. State Farm or some other company – needs to be a hero and they'd never have to have another commercial again if they just said we're going to insure every player that plays in a bowl game for a million dollars for the catastrophic insurance insurance injury that may happen i like it i'd like to i'd like to love to see the players playing in the bowl games how about we just move the bowl season or move the season earlier and and push the transfer portal window later we have too many problems with the transfer portal window opening on December the 4th of this year, closing on January 2nd. And we have too many problems with the transfer portal window interfering with the bowl games. Like, I would just say, hey, why do we need four weeks? Why do we need a month for players to transfer schools? How about we just say the transfer portal window doesn't open until what? Uh, how about the uh, the January 1? Or how about we open the window now? And I get it. I understand why the transfer portal window opens in December. The schools will tell you, hey, we need that time to get the athletes enrolled. But how about you make an exception for the athletes that are coming through the front door through the transfer portal? How about we just cut it down to two weeks? We say between January 1 and January 15th, that's when the portal is open. That keeps the bowl games like the Alamo Bowl, the Vegas Bowl. At least it gives you a puncher's chance to keep some of those student-athletes in place because they have not declared for the portal yet. 503-417-7575. The suggestion box is open. The doctor's in, so to speak, as Charlie Brown would say. Stephen, what do you have if you're putting something in the suggestion box? Yeah, for me, it's in college basketball. It's to keep the field of the NCAA tournament at, I'll even say at 68, that's fine to have the first four. I'm okay with it, uh, but don't expand it anymore. And then also to go with that, to make sure that you continue to have these smaller conferences be represented in the NCAA tournament. Because totally. that, that's what we love, right? We love the upsets. We love the Fairleigh Dickinson's upsetting Purdue in the first round. And, and if we expand the field to you know 128 or whatever, I don't need to be seeing you know a team like Minnesota who's 15 and 15 in the NCAA tournament. They don't, they don't belong. You don't deserve to be in. So I want to keep the small schools in, and there's been a lot of talk about how in these smaller conferences, they want to do away with the with the conference champion winner getting the automatic bid. You got to keep that in because, for the most part, it usually doesn't affect the actual tournament. Like the best teams are always going to win. There's been small cases, you know, Butler a couple years ago or back in the day, you know, with Gordon Hayward, how they got to the national title as a smaller school, but they didn't even win it. Like, you got to keep those in. That that's what the NCAA tournament is about. So for me, that's my favorite event of the year, and I just I want to keep it that way because if we expand too much, it's just going to get watered down. Yeah, I think I, I would even roll it back to 64. The first four, I think it's added a little bit of wet your appetite. But when we fill out our brackets, we're all filling out the bracket of 64. We all know that's additive, and I totally agree with you. If you start adding too many teams to the tournament, it loses the charm, it loses the beauty. I don't want to see these teams that are like five, six, seven, eighth place teams in major conferences uh, suddenly sneaking into the uh, NCAA tournament field at the expense of 
the teams that are you know like you know, like a Steph Curry led Davidson team or uh, teams that can get in there and really want to be in there and and punch their way into the tournament bracket. I think that makes a good point. I would like to throw it out there that you know I'd love to see Major League Baseball expand. We we've heard so much talk, and I'm not just saying this because Portland has been one of the teams or one of the cities that has wanted expansion and and really focused on getting expansion. I just think that like Major League Baseball is due for a refresh in general. They've refreshed some rules. Uh, you've seen like some new excitement in the game. I'd like to see some new cities and some new ballparks. And I'm not saying you need to add like six or eight teams, but can we get two more teams in Major League Baseball? Four more teams at most in Major League Baseball? I'd like to see that kind of expansion. I like what they're doing with the newer ballparks. You're not seeing like 55,000-seat stadiums anymore, seeing smaller, cozier ballparks. It fits kind of uh, the uh, the model of what baseball wants to be. So I'd love to see some expansion from baseball on that front. 503-417-7575. Put it in the suggestion box. Can we replay the J.J. Watt clip? Because I, I just want to unpack a little bit of what he's saying here. And I know I played it off the top, but let's replay the J.J. Watt clip. I, cause, you know, part in part because I, I think as the different reasons why that this game, the Rose Bowl game, should be the championship or trotted out, J.J. introduced something I hadn't really thought about. Listen to this. I mean, there is something about that place, about the stadium, about the sunset, about the mountains, the atmosphere, the vibe. Like, the game feels significantly bigger in that environment. Even the game that played right after it, the same significance to go to the national championship, phenomenal atmosphere, phenomenal game. The Superdome is an unbelievable place, and I know it was loud as hell in there. But the, it just doesn't feel the same when you're watching it. Like when you are watching the Rose Bowl, you feel you remember that Vince Young game against mm-hmm. the USC. You remember all those big moments. There's just something special about that place, and I think holding the national championship game there every single year would be very, very fitting for a game that is losing a lot of its, you know, history and tradition in college football. Let's let's hold on to one thing. Hold on to one thing, and he's so right because college athletics is in this race to be forward thinking to be different to find new revenue streams it's like every other corporate entity out there that's trying to find more money and cut expenses it's consolidation is happening all over the place i i get it i understand uh why it is that you know people want to do what they are doing with college athletics it's it's a financial move but jj hits on two things that i i hadn't really considered as reasons why the rose bowl should host he, you know, he he points out that like this is a sacred thing, and for um, an ecosystem that really has lost its mind. I mean, I wrote today about Dana Altman and the stuff he said on yesterday's program. Some of the things he shared on yesterday's program, where he was talking about, you know, the 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 agents that are involved in the transfer portal. He, you know, here he is. He's a sixty-five-year-old guy. He's been at it a long time. You know, he, he makes the comment, he says, you know, about the worst thing that could be said about you as a college coach in the last 40 years is that you paid players. Now everybody's paying players. You know, he's pointing out, like, how, how different the college game feels. And and we all are kind of reeling and grasping, you know, here goes the Pac-12 conference, 108 years of history, imploding. Here goes, you know, Oregon, Washington, UCLA, USC to the Big Ten. Here goes Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Colorado to the Big 12. Oregon and Oregon State starting over, rebuilding a conference. Stanford and Cal to the ACC. Transfer portal. Name image likeness. 
it's lost its mind, right? And so I do think college athletics, as much as we want to say it's rooted in tradition and history, needs to grab a hold of something right now and at least have a foothold and say, look, um, I know the Super Bowl is rotated, and it's rotated because the owners in the NFL all want to have, what, improvements to their own stadiums. They want to put pressure on the local authorities and and uh, taxpayers in their own markets saying, hey, if you invest in past bonds and, and pay for improvements and help me build a stadium, guess what can happen? We can get a billion-dollar event that can come to our city, and it's a trade-off that's made in the NFL all the time. College doesn't have to do that. It doesn't have to sell all the way out. It doesn't have to sell out to the venues. The early-round games are all going to be, you know, those first games are going to be home-field advantage games for the team that is higher-seeded. But, you know, when you talk about the Rose Bowl being involved in the playoff, why not make the Rose Bowl the destination? Well, do You've you blown th- up the conference. Give the give the Pacific time zone and people on the West Coast something to hold on to. Well, do you think to that point, I was thinking about this, like, should the Super Bowl be played just in one spot? Because there have been cities that haven't done as good a job as others. Like, there's obviously some really good choices for the Super Bowl. You know, New Orleans comes to mind. Like, they always do a really good job there. I'm sure Vegas would do a great job. Like, it's one of those things where should the Super Bowl just be in one place as well, kind of like college football or is it just because it's the professional nature of the NFL that they got to switch it around and they got to switch it up because well, you're right because yeah. with college like the Rose Bowl is the, like everyone that is a college football fan has like the memories of watching the Rose Bowl with Keith Jackson and the Sun and the mountains like J.J. Watts said but the NFL is a little different because it's more business like the NFL the dirty little secret is that the Super Bowls are awarded to cities that either make huge investments in in brand new stadiums or they make huge, uh, you know, investments in in infrastructure around the stadium, and the NFL and the NFL owners all reward that city like they're rewarding Vegas. You know, in February 11th, February 11th, they're going to play the game, um, you know, at Allegiant Stadium. Then the next Super Bowl is going to the Super Bowl Dome in New Orleans. Then the next Super Bowl is going to Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara. And the NFL owners are voting that way in part because they're lobbied to cast those votes by other owners going, hey, we need to support the cities that are investing, making investments in the Superdome and investments in Allegiant Stadium and investments in Levi Stadium and investments in AT&T Stadium because if we can show a city that, hey, if you make an investment in your stadium and you help your local NFL owner, you could get a Super Bowl. That helps all the owners. And so I get why the owners play that game, and they're playing that game in the NFL. So, you know, you keep an eye on where they're going to hold the next Super Bowl. Well, they'll they'll vote on it. The NFL owners will vote on it. And they could vote to hold it in San Diego every year. Like, they're you know, people, I, I covered a Super Bowl in San Diego years ago, Raiders and Buccaneers. And I remember people at the time saying the Super Bowl should be in this city every year. It's great weather. It was an outdoor stadium. And then, you know, the NFL people kind of whispering, going, the owners are never going to let that happen because the owner in Jacksonville and the owner in Tampa and the, you know, the owner in San Francisco wanted to move his team to Levi Stadium and Jerry Jones wanted Jerry World and, the, you know, Vegas got a stadium. And so what happens is the Super Bowl goes on this tour where it rewards the municipality that invested tax dollars in the stadium. And so that happens in the NFL. It's, it's a dirty game. It's almost like the Olympics where they're all lobbying and greasing palms and patting each other's backs. 
to try to get an Olympic bid. In college football, you're right, Stephen, like the, everybody knows the Rose Bowl. Nobody has a dog in the fight. It's got great tradition. There's tradition like none other. You know, you can talk about the other bowl games. and But the second thing that J.J. hit on is, you know, he's right. I watched the Sugar Bowl later in the day, and I watched the Rose Bowl, and there was no comparison. The Rose Bowl felt like a bigger game. It felt like it was the varsity game, and the JV game was played at the Superdome indoors. And then, you know, the national championship game will be in Houston, of course, on Monday. I'll be there. Uh, you know, I'll be doing call-ins to this show Monday, you know, in the run-up to the game. But it's not going to feel like the Rose Bowl. J.J.'s right. It feels bigger when it's in a stadium like that. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. we got a great show for you today. We're going to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Austin Meek of The Athletic covers Michigan football. We'll talk about what Oregon and Oregon State and others need to do to stay relevant and make their run next season into an expanded playoff. we got great shows all week. Stu Jackson, the WCC commissioner, will be on Friday's show. We're going to get a visit from Softy this week from KJR in Seattle. Great shows this week, but I want more of your phone calls. 503-417-7575. The Sports Suggestion Box is open. 503-417-7575. We'll get to the news of the day. They put the Epstein list out yet? Is that out yet? Not that I know of. I, 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 have, lot of I, haven't been, I haven't been scraping the internet for it, though, either, John. i tell you that. A lot of buildup. Uh, there was a fire. Tyreek Hill's uh, family home apparently had a fire. He is safe. His wife is safe. Uh, I found out today that Tyreek Hill lives in a house that's 9,300 square feet. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> like, not. I guess it's not shocking. But um, a seven-bedroom, eight-bathroom house. I don't know what it is with uh, NFL players, coaches, high-profile people in bathrooms. Why do they, why do they need so many bathrooms? Seven bath, se- eight bathrooms, seven bedrooms. Well, I think it's because if your house is so big, like if you're in one wing of a house, like you got to make sure there's a bathroom close, right? Okay. Like you, you don't want to walk across the entire house if you got to go. No, there you go. I guess you're right. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have that type of you know bathroom house money. In the meantime, uh, you've got Pat McAfee uh, playing the role of apologist for uh, for Aaron Rodgers. Did you hear what McAfee said about after Rodgers' comment? Rodgers basically um, came out yesterday and said that Jimmy Kimmel, not Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel was uh, did not want the Epstein list to come out and made a big deal about it on McAfee's show. And then McAfee basically came out today just saying more or less that Aaron Rodgers is was just talking smack, doesn't know the meaning of his own words. That's why I put him on air every week kind of response, not understanding that that doesn't get you off the hook when it comes to defamation and throwing out some nonsense. If that's not true, uh, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he, he basically said he was just taught he was just trying to talk. Bleep, when he made uh, the Jimmy Kimmel uh, reference to Epstein. So um, there you go. McAfee apologizing and just saying Aaron's too stupid to know what he was saying. Uh, we're going to play some punch and audio coming up. But uh, first, I, uh, I do want to take a call. Uh, let's go to uh, Joe in Hillsborough. Joe, what's your suggestion? Yeah, I'm an old timer. I know this is unrealistic, but I would love to see college football and NFL go back to natural turf. I think it uh, reduce injuries, 
And, you know, you're talking about the Rose Bowl Sugar Bowl. The difference was the Rose Bowl had grass, and the other one had that turf, which is kind of even hard to watch on TV. But I just love to go back to natural grass, and I know it's unrealistic, but that's what I would like. Natural grass at all football stadiums is something I could get behind. And Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, they've got that tray that they bring out, and I know it costs like, you know, a billion dollars to have uh, natural grass inside your stadium, but, you know, that tray is a pretty impressive process where they have the artificial turf that is there that, you know, was played in the Pac-12 championship game, and then when they turn around and play on Sunday for the Raiders, they just, you know, they start bringing the... uh, the regular grass back indoors. The regular grass is out getting sunshine all week, and is uh, and I've watched it. I've watched kind of. I've looked at the tray. You can see it. Like if you are walking by Allegiant Stadium, you can look through the fence and you can see the natural grass is out there, and it's like a practice field that's sitting adjacent to the stadium, and it just moves back into the stadium. But unfortunately, like a lot of the, it's a it's a cost prohibitive thing. And the NFL owners in the buildings and the venues will tell you that it's cheaper for them to have artificial surface, and it's frankly better for them when it comes to concerts and other events that they have to have and want to have in their buildings that help monetize their buildings. Having that natural surface there doesn't make as much sense for some of them. I do think from a sports standpoint, it's a no-brainer, though. And I do think we'll see... To the caller's point, I think we're going to see in our lifetime the NFL Players Association raise such a stink that the NFL owners have no choice but to go to a system where they are using uh, natural services inside buildings. I would not be surprised to see that mandated at some point. Not getting there yet. Not happening right now, but I won't be surprised when that well, happens. The groundwork's kind of been set down. A lot of the players this year, John, especially, have already been talking, been vocal about that. So I, I'm with you on that one. It seems like at some point it will go that way. But also, to your point and the caller's point of the Rose Bowl being so much more aesthetically pleasing, like isn't it just because it's out, like it's outside too? Like the whole dome, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just natural lighting. Yeah, the natural light and everything is just it makes it look so much better. It makes it feel like real football. Like even if there is weather. Like, you got to play within the weather, right? That's what football's about, playing in the rain, playing in the snow, like when you're a little kid. And it makes it easier when you're in Pasadena and not Detroit. That's you know? it. That's so it. That's I, that makes it happen. But it is, there is something aesthetically pleasing about, you know, the game starts and it's daylight. And then third or fourth quarter, all of a sudden the lights come on. And I was there for the Texas-Vince Young-USC game. I was in the stadium, you know, and I, I, I've been to that stadium mul- a multitude of times to watch – you know, Miami play against Ohio State or Nebraska, and to see, like, you know, everything, uh, you know, the history of that stadium. And and I've also seen it when it's half empty and UCLA's playing there, and it's still a great venue. But I'm a media person, and I'm coming in with a parking pass. It's a media pass. I'm coming in with a media credential going through a different gate. I've talked to people who have gone to the Rose Bowl as fans. They say it's a bleeping nightmare, like, to park – and to get into the stadium, it needs some upgrades, and they need some infrastructure upgrades around the stadium if they're going to turn it into the national championship venue because they're going to get complaints. Let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. 
Well, let's start with Michael Penix Jr. He's got the tall task of playing against the Michigan defense. Are they ready for him? Punch it. It's a good team over there, man. They're, they're coached up very well. Um, but we're going to be ready for the challenge. You know, they, they mix up the picture quite a bit. You know, they, they try to get the quarterback off, off his mark, you know. Um, but we'll be ready for it, you know. We, we know that. Um, you know, obviously, it's the biggest game, you know, right now, uh, mainly because it's our next one, but obviously because it's the championship as well, you know, for the national championship. But, man, um, I'm super excited for the opportunity. But, you know, we're just going to continue to, you know, prepare the same way that we do each and every week. And uh, um, we know that we have enough what it takes to, to be able to come out with the W. We just got to go out there, execute it, and do it. It's a great offensive player against a really good defense. Let's not get carried away, though. The Michigan game plan will not revolve around trying to get Michael Penix Jr. off his mark. I think Michigan's going to just try to control the line of scrimmage, not allow Washington to run the ball, make them one-dimensional, make Penix all that they have, and then you know do your best against those receivers. And, oh, by the way, keep the ball out of Penix's hands. 430 yards against Texas. Texas had a game plan, too. A big part of that ability to run the football centers around Dylan Johnson. Does he have an ankle injury? Is it a foot? What is it? Kalen DeBoer provided an update on Dylan Johnson. Remember, maybe the Huskies should have taken a knee towards the end of that Sugar Bowl. They instead handed Johnson. He gets hurt. How hurt is he? Punch it. Kalen DeBoer talking about Dylan Johnson. little trouble in here, John. I, I, I cannot find this one. <laughs> we are locked up on that. That's okay. Let's move on. How about Jim Harbaugh talking about Penix? Does he have a plan to stop Michael Penix Jr.? He is a super great player. Um, my impressions of him when he, when he played in Indiana were the, were the same. I mean, uh, big-time arm talent, um, tremendous pressure, uh, presence. I mean, presence in the pocket. Um Sees the field really well. Um, he is so polished. Um, watching him and his accuracy, decision-making, timing, <clears throat> and, um, you know, he has really uh, just continued to have this tremendous uh, presence of, of going through progression, feels pressure, will drop it off to a check down. Um, yeah, it's... It's it's at an elite level. Elite level player, elite uh, elite defense. I think you have uh, you know a little clue in there. Jim Harbaugh says his timing. It'll you know all of sports is timing, right? Pitching and hitting. It's you know pit, hitting is timing. Pitching is disrupting timing. Offense is timing. Defense is disrupting the timing. You're going to watch Michigan try to disrupt Michael Penix Jr., sure. But, you know, I've seen enough film on Penix Jr. and watched him enough this year. Oregon tried to defend him different ways. If you come after him, he can beat you bad. He can beat you deep down the field. I think the bigger factor would be the ability for Michigan just to control the line of scrimmage. Now, we've got that clip of Kalen DeBoer with the update on Dylan Johnson. What does Washington coach uh, Kalen DeBoer say about his running back? There's nothing as far as above and beyond what's happened in the past. You know, just uh, kind of throughout the game, you know, he'll re-aggravate it and shake it off and go back out there and play. Um, I guess my my thoughts are is that 
he'll be ready to go. Um, obviously, it's a quick week, quick turnaround. Um, you know, only seven days to, to get ready again. Uh, we'll be smart with how we prepare, uh, and I guess that's just my assumption, not having talked to him today. But even knowing when we landed, as long as everything came out all right with uh, everything, he was going to do everything he could to be on that football field uh, next Monday. I still, why is it that when I hear that and I see Dylan Johnson's Twitter feed that I become more worried about Dylan Johnson? He posted a photo of himself holding the Sugar Bowl trophy in the locker room on both feet. It was a little too much proof of life for me. You know, you watch a hostage situation, we need a proof of life photograph. It was a little too much proof of life for me. And so I'm, and I'm hearing Kalen DeBoer talk about a short week. It's a normal week. Every week I participate in has seven days. It's not a short week. And so I'm looking at that, I'm hearing that, and I'm kind of wondering if what Washington is trying to signal is, hey, he's okay, there's nothing to see here. But the way they're talking about it makes me wonder if there is something to see there. Stephen, am I being paranoid? I don't think so. It looked bad. The injury, I mean, the fact that he had to stay on the ground at the end of the game like that, where that was the only chance that Texas had to come back and win, and he couldn't get off the field, that ring just alarm bells to me. And I, and I was saying this to Judah, like, it's almost it would be almost be weird if he would be 100% healthy for this game the way he couldn't get off the field. And so I'm with you. I, I have my doubts on how healthy Dylan Johnson's going to be. And if, if he's not 100%, let's say he's 85 90% like he has been all season, and he's just he, he can't run – you know, and get big yardage, chunk yardage. You know, last game he averaged just over two and a half yards of carry. If that's what it is against Michigan, how big is that for Michigan? Just be able to, you know, sit back and say, you know what, we're going to just need to stop the pass. We don't have to worry about this run game. Is that is that that big of a difference for the Michigan defense? It is because I think Washington, What the, the difference for me down the stretch with Washington was that they started to run the ball better and better as the season went on. Maybe it's the offensive line, but some of that is Dylan Johnson. And there were games in which they didn't have to lean on Michael Penix Jr. You don't want to put all your eggs into one basket, so to speak. Michael Lombardi talking about Michael Penix Jr.'s game. Does he translate to the NFL? Why is everybody now just suddenly realizing that Penix can play? Punch it. When I watched that game, I, I, I immediately went back to that helmet behind me, the Raider helmet, where Al Davis would have just fell in love because his deep ball accuracy was not good not rare. It was beyond rare. I mean, you couldn't have walked the ball to the receiver any better than he threw it. And he's done this. Remember, when he was at Indiana with the board, he was very good. And I think Washington has been misvalued in the market because, you know, they win a close game against Utah. They win a close game against Oregon State. Then another one against Washington State. But he had rib problems. He might have had broken ribs. We don't know. We don't get an injury report. But this kid is exceptional. He plays a little stiff in his lower body, but it doesn't translate to the accuracy and the rhythm that he plays with. I mean, it was outstanding. If Al Davis saw him, oh, he could be thinking about Cliff Branch running over routes to this guy. <laughs> Look, when I see Michael Penix Jr., I think about the pocket passers of the 1980s and maybe into the early 90s in the NFL. You know, there is a Dan Marino, there is, it's not quite the arm of John Elway, but it's a similar type feel to a guy who, you know, Bernie Kosar, a um, Warren Moon, to a guy who can kill you with his arm if you give him time in the pocket and can kill you if you don't give him time. He's just so smart in distributing the ball, so accurate. 
He had 12 straight completions in the game, and he was throwing the ball down the field, getting those completions. 19 out of 20 at one stretch in the Sugar Bowl against Texas. I mean, he just made it look so ridiculously easy and fun. How big do the injuries and the age you think concern NFL scouts? Because he's going to be 24, I believe. Like, C.J. Stroud is going to be Offensive Rookie of the Year. He's 22 years old. Like, Penix is already going to be older than that. How big of a concern do you think that is for the scouts? I think... It's a thought for the scouts, but everybody in the NFL, all the GMs, all the head coaches who are picking high in the draft, they're not worried about five years from now. They're all going, I want a more experienced guy who I can bring in and I can play this season. I can play right away. Somebody who can come in and help save this damn team that's struggling and and floundering. And, you know, Michael Penix Jr. has had success this year. Yes, you you, uh, ask questions. You have your doctors evaluate them for the previous injuries, but I think the fact that he held up last year, he's held up this year, goes a long way towards erasing that narrative. And, you know, I'll I'll say this, like, you know, the 49ers take Brock Purdy with the last pick of the NFL draft, what was it, two drafts ago they take him with that last pick. He goes on to, you know, win all those games down the stretch for the Niners. This season he's been great for the Niners. He was in the MVP conversation, talking about a Pro Bowl you know he's a he's one of the best QBs in the NFL, or he's known as one. Part of Brock Purdy's uh, expertise was the fact that he had almost 50 starts in college football. He was a guy who had had experience and was game tested. You don't want a quarterback who's going to come in and say, oh, "I've had 12 starts, I've had 18 starts." You know, I haven't started more than one season, full season as a as a quarterback. I think the fact that Penix has been there really helps him. I think it's kind of comical as we're watching. You know, scouts and pundits from across the country, especially in the SEC footprint, are like, oh, I guess the guy can really play. Like, they, it's become evident they haven't watched Washington football. And I, and I think that's a crying shame. It's such an indictment of the Heisman process. I had Penix one on my ballot. I put Jaden Daniels second because he had the numbers. I had Bo Nix third, just didn't like how he played in the Pac-12 championship game. And, I, you know, frankly, I, I don't think I'm a homer for putting it that way. It was Penix, it was Daniels, it was Nick's. You could interchange Knicks and Daniels, but for me, Penix was the best player in the country. Nothing changed. I was not surprised at all by what he did in the Sugar Bowl. He's done that all year long. Coming up, our big splash. Plus, in the 4 o'clock hour, we'll go to Ann Arbor. Austin Meek of The Athletic talking about uh, the Michigan side of the championship game. Plus, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll deal with the Ducks and the Beavers. What do they need to do collectively, individually, to get into the playoff next year? What do they need to address? What are the looming questions for Oregon and Oregon State? Leave it here. Well, on Monday, it'll be Michigan and Washington for the national championship in Houston. That game will kick off at 4 o'clock Pacific time. He's been all over Michigan over the last couple years. You know him from his time at the Eugene Register Guard. Austin Meek is a longtime friend of this show, and now he is our expert insider on Michigan football. He's been on that beat for The Athletic and knows the stories, knows the personalities. Austin Meek of The Athletic joining us. How are you, man? Oh, next segment. I'm sorry. I was queuing him up already. There you go. I'm a little bit early to that. I, I was overprepared. Is that what we're saying? You're too focused. I did the whole intro. Like, I was all the way <laughs> led up to Austin Meek, ready to go. You know why? Because I was stressing. 
I was stressing over here about being prepared for that. Now I end up overprepared. I'm like the guy who's ready to run the the 10K race, and I'm running around stretching out, working out, and then I uh, I realize uh, that I uh, I left my best stuff on the uh, on the training circuit. I should have jumped in. I heard it, but I thought maybe you're just teasing it for next segment. Okay, that, so that let me a, just say that yeah. coming up next segment, Austin Meek. <laughs> Because uh, yeah, I wanted, I have here. I have a Caitlin clip, Caitlin Clark clip that I want to. I want to play here for our big splash. I was all ready. I teased the big splash. Did I not? Did I not say did. I have our you, big splash coming see, up? You said yeah. You said big splash. So I thought you were teasing it for next segment. Then I started on the commercial break prepping for Austin Meek, and then <laughs> and then went. Well, I better cue up Austin Meek here. And then all of a sudden, uh, no, he's not here. We're 10 minutes early. Okay, so Austin Meek coming up in 10 minutes. In the meantime, uh, I'll give us our big splash. This is the big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger. Voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger's 10 rad burger builds will send your taste buds on an epic journey. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. That's what happens when you take time off. You take a vacation. <laughs> That's what happens. You come back. You're a little bit uh, foggy about how, what time is it? Where am I? Uh, Caitlin Clark, game-winning three-pointer. It's Michigan State, Iowa, tied at 73. Do not let Caitlin Clark beat you. Davis, time winding down. Are they going to get the ball up in time? Clark for the win. It's her signature. That is the most Caitlin Clark way to win a game. Caitlin Clark, you can't let her beat you in that situation. She cannot touch the ball. Deny, deny, deny. Foul somebody else. Doesn't matter. Tie game. Ends up 76-73. Iowa's really good. Guess what? We've got the Western Regional that will be hosted here in Portland. Last year, Caitlin Clark and Iowa went to the West Regional. They ended up in Seattle playing in the regional final there and advancing to the final four, ultimately the national championship game. Will she be passing through Portland later this basketball season? We'll find out. Iowa on its way looks every bit like uh, the team that uh, played for a national championship last season. Uh, in the meantime, LSU having some early season problems. They seem to have, uh, you know, obviously found their uh, found their stride. Kim Mulkey's a, a good coach. She's pretty obnoxious. But uh, I think she's a really good coach. She's got some proof of performance. But uh, Iowa looking a little hungrier at this point of the season. Still, LSU uh, ranks seventh in the in the latest poll, uh, playing playing pretty well. Although you know when you're playing against Jacksonville and Coppin State and Louisiana Lafayette, I don't know if we know you're if you're good or you're not. It sounds like uh, the Jaden Daniel strategy. Pump, yeah. pump up your stats against you know Georgia State and then uh, you know get get credit for it. This basketball season, I, I kind of feel like, you know how basketball, everybody always talks about midnight madness, but it kind of feels like basketball season, college basketball is just starting, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the new year is kind of kind of when it starts, when conference play starts. You know, conference play just kind of started this past weekend. I think, you know, for the most part, that's when you really can start paying attention to college basketball a little bit. Like, the non-conference stuff is fun. There's a couple good matchups. But, yeah, once, once you get to conference play, that's when you can start really, really digging in. 
Should I just uh, introduce our five o'clock hour guest now? Might as well. I mean, that's <laughs> I've already introduced. That's what we're doing in twenty twenty four. We're just going to introduce the guests every segment. A younger me would have been embarrassed by that, but I now I'm just looking at it, going, "Man, am I uh, am I uh, that locked in? Am I that like? Because that's what happens." You know, my word of the year is focus. Well, that's Come the problem. On. You're too focused. You're trying to make sure you got the best questions and, you know, you got everything ready for them to go. So, you're, you know, you're thinking ahead. I just know when I go on other people's shows, one of the things that frustrates me is when the host isn't prepared for the interview. They don't know what I've written that day or what I wrote the day before. And so on the commercial break, as, you know, I, I made a mental note last whatever Saturday. Was it Monday? When they play these games, Monday, I made a mental note, felt like Saturday, and I said to myself, uh, Michigan's in the title game, should have Austin Meek on this week. And, you know, a former Register Guard columnist, friend of this show, we know him, listeners in Eugene on Fox Sports Eugene know him, and so he would be a, the ideal guest to come on and talk about Jim Harbaugh and Michigan football and whatnot. But I didn't want to just bring him on and be like, you know, Hey, Austin, what do you think? I was reading what Austin had written and tweeted, looking at what he tweeted. And so then the com- you know, the commercial break ended, and I went right into <laughs> introducing Austin Meek instead of uh, thinking about what the hell I was supposed to be doing. So no excuse. Still, uh, still messed it up. But, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. All right, Austin Meek really is coming up next right here on this radio show. Do you promise show. that he's coming up next? I, I now I'm not going to guarantee it because okay. I can't control if he's going to answer his phone or not when you know when we call him. That's fair. That's but fair. in the five o'clock hour, we are going to talk about Oregon and Oregon State. Oregon has a very different task next season in the Big Ten. How does Oregon get to the playoff? What questions need to be answered? I'll start with the quarterback. Is it Dylan Gabriel? Or someone else? And then we'll talk about Oregon State. What do they need to do if they're going to make a playoff run? Leave it here. Well, our next guest has got his finger on the pulse of Michigan football. And he understands what you're going through, too, in the Pacific Northwest. Austin Meek, former columnist at the Eugene Register Guard, now lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and works for The Athletic, and does a hell of a job. Covering Jim Harbaugh, Michigan, writing about Harbaugh. Is Michigan going to have to vacate some wins? Does that sideshow with the signal stealing or the sign stealing have anything to do with what we're going to see on Monday? I'll be in Houston for the national championship game. Washington playing Michigan. Austin Meek will be there. And we really are bringing him on this time. Austin Meek formerly of the Eugene Register Guard. Good to hear your voice, my friend. Hey, John. It's good to hear your voice, too. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Houston. And I'm looking forward to a good game in Houston. I I think this is going to be a really compelling matchup. Give us an idea of what it's just felt like this year, because we're all, you know, thousands of miles away watching the circus atmosphere and the stories about the sign stealing. But you were right in the middle of it. What has it been like? It really did feel like being in the eye of the storm. If there was a period of time there uh, for about a month of the season where it just felt like every single day there was something coming out about Michigan. This story had had so many so many layers to it. You know, you you kind of had to uh, you had to keep your bearings because 
the Michigan fan base got pretty deep into it. A lot of a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of uh, a lot of rumors floating around out there about you know the sign stealing investigation and how it started and where it started. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild story. I've never covered anything like this in in my time covering college football. I uh, probably never will again. Um, and it's it's pretty remarkable, I think, to be here now talking to you a few days from the national championship game with Michigan in this game because when all this stuff was going on, I, I certainly was not was not convinced that Michigan was going to be able to to come through this in one piece and and be able to make it all the way to the championship game. Yeah, you you were in Pasadena on Monday for the Rose Bowl. Very cool setting there. Very outstanding finish. You talked to Michigan's athletic director, and you sort of captured what the program has been through. Um, you know, what? Give us an idea, like from Ward Manuel's position, the athletic director at at Michigan. You know, he feels like he's got the right guy in Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a fascinating relationship with Jim Harbaugh and Michigan and, and Ward Manuel, the athletic director. You know, Jim Harbaugh and Ward Manuel were teammates at Michigan. Uh, they go way back. Um, and they've they've been through the ups and downs uh, during Jim Harbaugh's time here. You know, there there was a point in time just a few years ago when a lot of Michigan fans thought Ward Manuel should fire Jim Harbaugh. Ward Manuel brought him back on a reduced contract after Michigan went two and four in 2020, and a lot of fans were mad about it. Uh, well, that worked out pretty well for Michigan. <laughs> they were only uh, 40 and three, I believe, over the last three seasons. Um, and now the question for Ward Manuel is, can he get Jim Harbaugh to sign another contract extension, or is there going to be an NFL team like the Chargers that's going to come in and uh, give Jim Harbaugh an offer he can't refuse? Um, you know, Ward Manuel, after the game, um, somebody asked him, like, hey, are you going to try to get Jim Harbaugh to sign that contract on the plane home? Ward Manuel said, I'm trying, um, but I think everybody in Michigan understands that the NFL is going to come calling again for Jim Harbaugh in this offseason, and it's just a matter of does he get the offer, uh, the right offer to leave Michigan, or can Michigan figure out a way to hang on to him? Tell me how Monday's game factors in this, You know, meaning if Harbaugh wins a national championship, more likely, less likely to come back. If he loses the game, more likely, less likely. Is it a factor? It might be a small factor, John. I think... I think uh, winning the Rose Bowl, I think for Michigan, um, you know that that alleviated a lot of that pressure. I think if Jim Harbaugh had lost in the semifinals of the college football playoff three years in a row, that that might have eaten at him. Um, I think to get over that hump and to win that game and to beat Alabama, uh, I think that that you know I think that that was a stamp of legitimacy on everything that, that Jim Harbaugh has built at Michigan. Now, I think certainly uh, the job is not done from Michigan's perspective. This team really from day one said their goal was to win a national championship. Uh, they're not going to be satisfied to just get to this game. They they have put everything into winning this game and, and winning the national championship. I think if Michigan wins the national championship, it certainly would be uh, would be – fitting in a way for Jim Harbaugh to be able to ride off into the sunset and feel like he accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish at Michigan. Uh, but even if he loses, you know, I, I, you never say never, and Michigan certainly could get back to this point. Uh, but I think what he's accomplished already at Michigan 
um, is you know as as much as anybody could have realistically hoped or or dreamed for looking at where the program was a couple of years ago. The Michigan special teams in the Rose Bowl were terrible. I mean, you had the missed field goal, bad snaps, muffed return. I think they were a man short on a punt return. Has that been something all year? Or was it was it a Rose Bowl big game thing? What was going on there? You know, they've been pretty good all year. Special teams have been a strength for Michigan, honestly, throughout Jim Harbaugh's tenure. They were very good in 2021 and 2022. Not as good this year because Michigan had to replace pretty much everybody on that special teams unit, but but they made it through the season without really having any big special teams gas. But, wow, it really almost cost them in that game. Um, If Michigan had lost that game, we all would be spending all week talking about Michigan special teams because – from the muffed punt on the on the first first punt return to the missed field goal to the muffed punt at the end that almost was a disaster for Michigan. Really, it, it was all across the board on that special teams unit. You know, I, I tend to think it was probably some big game jitters for some guys who hadn't been in that position before, and maybe they got that out of their system and they'll be better in the national championship game. But it, it was rough. That was as bad as I have seen Michigan special teams look at any point since I've been covering the team. You wrote about J.J. McCarthy prior to the Rose Bowl and his ritual in the pregame. Uh, everybody's talking about Michael Penix Jr. this week, but give us an idea what you learned in writing that piece about J.J. McCarthy, the Michigan quarterback. Well, J.J. McCarthy, I think he has the complete package that NFL teams are going to be looking for. Uh, it, when they look for a guy who's going to be able to lead a franchise, it's Obviously, the the arm talent, uh, the ability to process the game, the athleticism, he's a very good runner. But I think one of the things that J.J. McCarthy brings to the table is, is just his attitude and his mindset. I don't think I've ever seen that guy, maybe with a couple exceptions, without a smile on his face. Um, he wasn't smiling after Michigan lost to TCU last year. He got up and walked out of the press conference after one question. But 99% of the time that I've been in a room with J.J. McCarthy, he just sort of radiates a positive energy. And I think that's very intentional. He he has his pregame meditation routine that he does where he sits with his back to the goalposts. Uh, he does some breathing exercises. He listens to, to some special music that, that, he, uh, that he likes to listen to. It's just to clear his head, uh, to get in the right headspace for the game. And I think, you know, one thing that he is able to do is move on from a bad play. Um, he almost threw an interception on the first play of the Rose Bowl. Uh, at the end of the game, Michigan was down seven. The offense had really been struggling. He stepped up and made some really big throws. So he's he's pretty unflappable out there. Uh, and I think he's a really good quarterback. I think, I think we're going to watch him play in the NFL for a long time. It's just a matter of does he win a national championship at Michigan before he goes. We're talking to Austin Meek of The Athletic. Covers Michigan football. Been on the beat all year long. Uh, Jim Harbaugh hires Don Yee to handle the NFL inquiries. Is he just driving up the value? Is he just exploring what's out there? What is he doing? Well, the thing to understand about Jim Harbaugh, he does this every year. He did it last year. He did it the year before that. He wants to know what's out there for him. He he is not the kind of coach who's going to prematurely sign a contract 
and close off his options until he's really explored what's out there. Uh, we know that he got on the plane in after the 2021 season to interview for the Minnesota Vikings and would have taken the job if it had been offered to him. It wasn't offered to him. He came back to Michigan. Last year he had conversations with the Broncos. He is interested in going back to the NFL. Everybody I've, I've talked to has said that. But it takes the right team to hire Jim Harbaugh, a team that you know is willing to kind of put up with everything that comes with Jim Harbaugh being your football coach. Uh, and it takes the right offer. And that hasn't come together for him yet. Um, it could come together for him this offseason. It feels like this could be the time. Uh, certainly having Don Yee working on his behalf is a sign that he's serious about it. Uh, but, you know, he's done this before, and he's ended up back at Michigan, and I think that that is still a possibility. Defensively, Michigan's got to deal with Michael Penix Jr. How do they stop him, Austin? Well, first I think they got to get pressure on him. Uh, that's something that Michigan did really well against Alabama and Jalen Milrow. They sacked Jalen Milrow six times. Really, in the first half, Alabama couldn't block Michigan's front. Uh, but this is a different challenge because uh, Michael Penix gets the ball out quickly. Jalen Milrow had a tendency to hold the ball and scramble around back there. Um, and Michael Penix is just, you know, it, it's a completely different challenge because he's such a precise thrower. He throws such an accurate deep ball. Um, I think that Michigan secondary is going to have to play the best game they've played this season. They really haven't faced a lot of dynamic quarterbacks this season. Uh, Michael Penix is, is just going to be a different kind of challenge, especially when you pair him up with this wide receiving core that Washington has, which I think maybe is the best that Michigan has played all season. They played Marvin Harrison Jr. in Ohio State, and that's a very good receiving core, but I'm not sure that Washington's isn't better top to bottom. Um, so it's going to be a huge challenge for, for Michigan's defense. Um, but I think it's a challenge they're ready for. That, that defense has been the strength of the, of the team all season um, and came up big in the Rose Bowl. You know, After a couple disappointing performances in the playoff, the defense hadn't been good the last couple years in the playoff, but they, they really showed up in the Rose Bowl. Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA going into the Big Ten next year. I know, you know your ears probably perked up from your time in covering the Pac-12, seeing those teams come in. How are they going to fare in the big in today's Big Ten? John, I think that they will compete. I really do. I mean, I watched a lot of Big Ten football this year, um, and there was not a lot after you got through the first two or three teams in the Big Ten uh, that really impressed you. Iowa was in the Big Ten championship game, and they couldn't score. Uh, they were dreadful on offense. Now, they, they play good defense. There are good defenses in the Big Ten. Penn State has a good defense. Uh, but if I'm Oregon or Washington, I am I am not intimidated coming into the Big Ten thinking like, oh, you know, can we can we compete with the the big bad Big Ten? Uh, Michigan and Ohio State are always going to be good because they recruit at a high level and develop at a high level. Penn State is always going to have good athletes, but once you get into the middle of the of the Big Ten, uh, there's there's room for a team like Oregon or Washington to come into this league and, and really make some hay. And I, I expect those teams to contend. I really do. Austin Meek with the athletic, uh, you know, I'm looking at this game and everybody talks panics. You know, we, we can talk about Michigan's defense. What do you think the keys to the game are? Because you have a sense of what Michigan needs to do. Well, well, I think Michigan needs to score. 
um, their offense can go into go into hibernation at times, as it did against Alabama. The offense really was MIA for a big chunk of the second half until that last drive. And they, they did it when they needed to. They made, they made the plays they needed to make to win that game. But they're going to have to make more of them against Washington because I think Washington's going to be able to score. Uh, I think this. I think Michigan needs to go into this game thinking they need at least 30 points on the board from their offense. And I think they need to force a couple turnovers. Michigan has been good at, at taking care of the ball. They've, they've been uh, ahead in the turnover margin pretty much all year. Michael Penix will throw an interception here and there. Uh, and I think Michigan needs to go into the game thinking that they, they're going to get a couple takeaways and they're going to take care of the ball on their own side. And then if they can, if they can move the ball on offense, I think they'll be in good shape. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a great game. I like Washington. I think Washington's receivers and quarterback combination, I've just seen them do it all year long. It's hard for me to imagine them not doing it uh, for one more game. But, uh, you know, I, you know, in, in the Big Ten Conference, you talked about the passing challenges. You know, what has Michigan seen from a quarterback-receiver standpoint? What kind of attacks have they experienced this year? Yeah, I mean, the best one they faced certainly was Ohio State, uh, primarily, you know, with the receivers, Marvin Harrison and Emeka Ibuka. Uh, th- those are, are two really difficult wide receivers to defend, and Michigan did a nice job on those guys. Uh, but at the quarterback position, Michael Penix is going to be the best quarterback Michigan has, has faced this year, maybe by a pretty wide margin. You know, Kyle McCord did not have a great game against Michigan. Um, Jalen Milrow didn't have a great game against Michigan. Now, Michigan had a lot to do with that, um, but I just think especially the ability to attack downfield uh, from Michael Penix is just it's, – it's a different thing than Michigan saw for, for most of the Big Ten season. Um, so a guy like Will Johnson at cornerback, and he was a five-star recruit, one of the most talented players on the roster, um, he's going to have a huge, huge challenge in this game. Uh, and really that whole secondary is because they just – you know, they've played well when they've been tested but they just haven't been tested as much as, as some other defenses around the country. The Eugene Register Guard, not the same without you. We all we have lamented the downfall of newspapers. It's great to see you doing well. But what do you remember from your time as a sports columnist at the Register Guard? And, and I'm not even going to tell you what that paper looks like today. You probably have heard from people, but it's just it's sad to see them not covering things the way that they used to cover them when you were there. Yeah, man, I tell you what, John, this it really kind of brings it full circle to me to be headed to the, the CFP championship game because it was 2014, right? Uh, you and I were in, uh, yeah. in Dallas at, uh, at Jerry World to cover Oregon and Ohio State in the first college football playoff championship game. Uh, and now we're, we're getting ready to cover the last of the four-team playoff championship games. Uh, so a lot has changed in in 10 years um you know we were we were rolling pretty deep 10 years ago i think there were uh probably four or five of us from the register guard uh in dallas to cover that game and you know it's a great memory um a highlight of of my uh of my career to be there and cover that game it it was not a game that you know turned out the way oregon wanted it but um still pretty special for oregon to be playing on that stage um i know they're they're really trying to get back there so yeah um, I feel fortunate to still be doing this, you know, 10 years later. Uh, it, it, things change fast. Like, it's crazy to think about how, how the world has changed in, 
in 10 years. Uh, but yeah, I feel, feel fortunate to be able to do it, do this still and uh, to be getting ready to cover another championship game. I will see you in Houston on Monday. Uh, big game, Pac-12's finale. I guess it's the last game that a, that a Pac-12, as we know it, team will play uh, in, a, in a playoff setting and looking forward to next year in the playoff as well. Austin Meek, thank you for giving us your time. I know you're busy. You can read him. Uh, on The Athletic, and you can find him on Twitter, Austin Meek. Appreciate you, man. All right, man. Travel safe. I'll see you in Houston. I will see you there. There he is, former columnist in the Eugene Register Guard. And, uh, look, I think it's really been sad to see what has happened to newspapers. There's still a lot of good people working in those newsrooms across the country, especially in college towns and regional papers that, you know, there's a lot of hardworking good people working there, but they're fighting a fight that, you know, management and corporations don't want to fight. And the downfall and the plight of newspapers, you know, we've talked about it a lot on this show, and I think it's really been sad to see. But I'm glad to see that outlets like The Athletic have popped up. You all know that I'm writing at johnconzano.com. You can read me there. Um, you know, I, I just uh, continue to kind of shake my head and go, oh, gosh, there's an audience out there. There's an appetite for good writing, good reporting, sourced in-depth reporting and writing. And, um, you know, it's just sad to see what's uh, what's become of papers. Anna's going to pop in the studio in the 5 o'clock hour. We're going to talk about Oregon. Oregon played in that national championship game, 2014, 2015, uh, 2014 football season, 2015 Rose Bowl, 2015 national title game against Ohio State. That is the only Pac-12 team until this year that has competed for the national championship in the college football playoff era. Washington now getting there against Michigan on Monday. But what would it take to get Oregon back to a championship game? We'll talk about that with Spencer McLaughlin coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Plus, we'll talk about Oregon State's plight. They've got a different path. But nonetheless, it is a path that Trent Bray and the Beavers could take in fashioning together a season that could put them in the playoff. Is it possible Oregon State gets in the playoff next year? We'll talk about that in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. My wife is smarter than I am, but I actually think I know something that she doesn't know. I found something. Anna's popped into the studio. Do you know, uh, do you know uh, why they call it a one-alarm fire, two-alarm fire, three-alarm fire? Do you know? Don't Google it. <laughs> She's Googling it. Well, I what I remember is that it signifies the response size like the number of crews that are called to the scene but i don't know what the exact breakdown of it you know like two three four five well two alarm fire increases the danger from a one alarm fire so the firefighters (laughs) you know this off the top of your head as you google it no 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 the firemen (laughs) that i know tell me Tell me that they know, hey, this is a three-alarm fire. Their radar's up, going in, mm-hmm. you know? For all those conversations that you have with firefighters <laughs> in so, the grocery store Tyree Kill. shopping. Tyreek Hill had a, uh, I believe it was How a- How many alarms? It was a two-alarm fire. That's nothing. It was a, that is actually a decent fire. Uh, for people who don't know, he's safe. He's okay. His family's okay. He just got married. Uh-huh. But- uh, Tyreek Hill and his family are safe. His house in Florida 
caught fire today. There was an incident. They had helicopters flying over. I think a helicopter would be a bad thing to have over the top of a fire. You don't want to increase the, uh, you know, the ventilation over the top of the fire with a helicopter, do you? The ventilation. You know, what they're are you circulating the air. About? They're circulating the air. You could get a backdraft situation. <laughs> You're just throwing out random fire. Anyway. I digress. If Tyra Tyra wasn't here, you would have sounded so smart. Like, you could have pulled that off like you knew exactly what you're talking about. It's all in the conviction. Yeah, but Anna's here to call you out and say, you're wrong. You know, this is my life. This is my life. She basically just (laughs) makes fun of everything I say. But uh, the the best part of the helicopter being uh, on the scene for this fire is that they caught images of Tyreek Hill wandering around the property with his left foot in a walking boot. And he's embracing his wife. He got married last month and his mother, who lives at the house, and uh, talking to authorities. He's kind of roaming around. Apparently, the fire crews were unable to enter the home, but the firefighters did put the fire out. How did they do that? I guess it was, you know, did they go? They How do they put the fire out without going into the house? Not I, safe? I, I don't know. I don't know. But apparently there was a home theater involved, a den involved, a bedroom involved. Well, they must so, have put water on it. The house yeah. also has a putting green, a basketball court, a saltwater filtration this, pool. This is not a and house. And a spa built for 10 people. This is a mansion. That's There's not a house. also on the property two guest houses along with a lemon, mango, and banana tree. Um, <laughs> they uh, That's tremendous detail. You know, Stephen, have you ever had a fire at your house? Um, No, not a full-blown fire. One time we had a uh, microwave popcorn scare. Uh, I don't know if we just put it in for too long, but we were. Uh, it was when we were first renting that house, and all of a sudden, me and my wife, when we were dating, we were just we started like smelling something weird, and we go out, we see the microwave is just like there's smoke coming out of it, so we stopped it there, but nothing, uh, no real fire, just just a scare. Who's better in your household in in a panic situation like that? Oh, Coach Vaughn for sure, hundred percent. She is. Uh, <laughs> she's cold as ice. You're screaming. You got under a table. Yeah, I just she, I, she I ran away. I just ran away and pretend like it's not happening. We had a fire a few years ago at our house. It was uh, a really unusual situation. We had had a holiday party at our house, and. We had way too many people at the house. Mm -hmm. We invited the bartender at Huber's, downtown Portland, the oldest restaurant in Portland. So we hired the bartender at Huber's to come to the house and make Spanish coffees. And and if you've never had a Spanish coffee, it does involve a flame. And so the bartender set up in this dining room area and kind of we moved the dining room table against the wall. And instead of just like, lighting a match each time or whatever, he lit a candle. And he had a candle burning the whole night that he kind of just used the flame from the candle to do the Spanish coffees because there was a line of people wanting to get Spanish coffees. These are delicious, yummy uh, holiday treats. And so uh, adult beverages as well. But um, (laughs) he uh, ended up packing up and leaving for the night. And we were all in another section of the house and – hanging out with about 10 stragglers who were late. Like, you know, the people who have no kids have nowhere to be. It's midnight, 1 a.m., holiday party's over. You need to get going, but you're not leaving. You know, those kind of friends, they were hanging out still. And then all of a sudden, I hear the fire alarm going off. You know, and our fire alarm is like a monitored alarm system. You know, it's high tech, whatever. And so uh, all of a sudden, I walk out of that room And I've never seen so much smoke in my life. 
And I thought to myself, like, this isn't happening. Like, that's really weird. Where is the smoke coming from? Like, that's that's bizarre. And I uh, walked towards the dining room with smoke hovering about five feet into the air, and I realized that the candle that the dude, the bartender dude, had left, and the candle was still burning. It burned down, and then it tipped over on the table. It caught the uh, tablecloth and the table on fire and was now starting to burn up the wall. That's when the fire alarm went off. So I did what any self-respecting American man would do, head of household. I didn't get under the table. I took the uh, Crown and Coke drink that was in my right hand, and I tossed it on the flame. It did nothing. Brilliant. Uh, Then I took the tablecloth, probably shouldn't have done this, and I folded it over the top of the flame. Because I know that what is it? What does a fire need? Oxygen. Oxygen. That's why you don't fly a helicopter over the top of the house, Anna. Okay, so I uh <laughs> Did I did I blow a fan on the thing? That's how fire physics Did works. I start going <laughs> says says the guy who threw a crown and coke no. in the fire. Did I turn on a fan in the room? You no. I smothered the you flame. Have breathed heavy. I smothered the flame <laughs> and took the oxygen away. Okay? Yeah. The fire went out. Yeah. Well, and then you open the front door. I open the front door through the blanket, like the uh, tablecloth, out the front. It was door. one of those moments where you, I, I, I've heard of stories. I've read stories where parents, you know, there was like a woman who's four foot eleven, and her child will be trapped under the car, and she lifts the bumper of the Winnebago and pulls it up into the air, and the this kid was crawls not at out all like that. I, yes, it's one of those moments where you do, you're out of body, and so <laughs> I folded that tablecloth up. It was smoking like a meteor. And I threw it onto the porch. But as I opened the door and threw it, here came fully uniformed firefighters. It was a one-alarm situation, sure. But the firefighters said, as they passed the breezeway and roared past me, where's the candle? Now, I beg you to tell me, were these firefighters at the party earlier? Did they notice that there was somebody making Spanish coffees and know there was a candle involved? Or is there always a candle involved? And his response was, this time of year, it's always a candle. How did he know? He just knew. So there's the story, and you'd think it would end there for most people, but it doesn't. That story of the fire, the one-alarm fire at our house, extends to the following day. Anna... As, oh, I get to tell this part of the yeah, story? Yeah, go ahead. I'll let you take over. So the next day I go to work. I don't know why. I guess I we had really a, a good plan to throw a late night party, and then the next day I had to go work as a reporter. And I got assigned to do a story about, wait for it, holiday fire safety. And the story for me was in Portland. So I called up the Portland Fire spokesperson and we did a whole walkthrough Q&A of some other house and talked about all the different fire hazards that can you know be exacerbated during the holidays i.e. candles and um, he waited until the very end of this like hour and a half long chat and mind you we're not in the Portland fire district Uh, we're you know in TVF and our territory And he just kind of paused and started laughing and looked at me and said, you know, it's so funny that you got assigned to do this story. They knew. (laughs) I just stared at him like, what do you mean? What do you mean? 
They had already heard about it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was so embarrassed. And you know what I'm kind of mad at? What? I got no props for putting the fire out from the fireman. Well, you tried to look like a man in front of the fireman, too. That's the thing. You risked your life. I uh, threw the uh, flaming thing out. That ended the party, by the way. Everybody went home. Yeah, it's a good way to send people home. <laughs> I said we had to set the house on fire to get people out of there. Um, we still have the dining room table. It's got a big black mark. Yeah, we kept the, the table. End. Posterity. It's a reminder, you know? It's a, remi- it's a reminder of what can go wrong. As a result, we have no real candles allowed to burn in the home, really, now, ever again. As much as I'd like to blame... The bartender? It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. No. No. He's doing his job. He left. I should have known. Somebody should have went over and went and blown the thing out. Yeah. Yeah. Would have saved a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. I love the two things. Like, the other thing was, your mom happened to be visiting. Yeah. And she was in uh, one of the upstairs bedrooms, and when the fire alarm's going off, the firefighters come through. She opens the bedroom door, looks out. There's, there's smoke as thick as anything. <laughs> and she just uh, goes back to bed. <laughs> No, nothing to see here. It's all good. Just wanted to see what the commotion was about. <laughs> see what? Are you a light sleeper, Stephen? Heavy sleeper? Oh, heavy sleeper. Heavy sleeper. Yeah, you. It takes it takes a little bit to wake me up. I'm like those uh, bandits in the movies where they have a gun under their pillow, and if they hear a noise, they just pop up and they they're ready. Like that's me. <laughs> and but normally now that we have a uh, 77 year old Taiwanese man living at our house and his dad, uh, it's normally just him going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm jumping up at all hours, going, what's going on? What's going on? Oh, it's just for the fourth time tonight that uh, he's used the restroom. So so uh, there's that. <laughs> I don't think we've thrown a holiday party since then, have we? Yeah, Was we that did. the last one? I think we did one after. Did we circle back and do that? Yeah. We did one after. It didn't end in such an exciting way, though. I think we should do it again. Yeah. Let's run it back. Yeah. Huber's and all. <laughs> you know? Are you going to bring the candles back? Yeah, bring candles back, too. I just think, like, uh, you know, maybe I'll give the guy a lighter. You know, why Why do you need a candle all the time burning? It's, fan, it's for ambiance, right? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. So that's the story of the time that we almost burned our house down. I want to hear what Tyreek Hill's story is. What was he doing? Was so it a candle? The fire was in the attic. Was there a candle involved or an electrical fire? What's going on? I don't know. Is he keeping his mom in the attic? <laughs> like, you know, his mom lives there. His, uh... His wife, his new wife is there. Yeah. Caused quite a stir when he married her. Like, there's a big, uh, some other people who were angry, who thought they were in line to marry him, and uh, apparently didn't get the the, uh, the first position. And so uh, now he's got a fire at his house. Do you, could there be more to this story? Remember when uh, the member of TLC set uh, Andre Risen's house on fire? Lisa Left Eye, uh, Left Eye, remember Left Eye? Was it Why? Was it like a it was, scorned woman situation? I think there was some bad feelings involved there. <laughs> you think? Yeah, that's why you set someone's house on fire. <laughs> you know? That's pretty intense. I don't think she was taking a bath and knocked over a candle. I think she was driving by. So she skipped right past, like, the puncturing of his tires and taking a key to his car and just set his house on that's fire. That's how I remember it. Huh. it, it I, I remember that it was Lisa left Ilopes, you know? You know? And... <laughs> And I remember it was Andre Risen. Okay. And uh, beyond that, I remember there was a fire. And, yeah, she burned down his house, $1.3 million house. Burned down the home of her boyfriend wow. in 1994. Yeah, the year wow. before before the arson incident said the Super Bowl champion, Risen, was accused of assaulting her in a parking lot at a Kroger supermarket. Yeah, that's not good. There you go. Um, so they, yeah. 
he got charged with assault for that. She got arrested during the incident for attacking the police officer. <laughs> oh my. During that thing. And then uh later she ended up uh by the way, he forgave her for burning down the house. Oh. Well. So you know, he, must have done some, he must have she, done some bad stuff then. If, if she, you're forgiving yeah. someone for burning down your one point three million dollar house, <laughs> you you did something. It's like it's like what did he do? Yeah, he is Where not he looks he, at that and goes, I understand. But yeah, that's what he's not when, in this but thing. that's the difference. That's what the difference between men and women. What? When don't don't lie. When you see something on social media, okay, and it's somebody, some lady stabbed her boyfriend or husband. My question is, what did he do? Exactly, hundred <laughs> percent. That's the way women think. Isn't that terrible? It is terrible. It's and honest. by the way, Lisa Lopez died in two thousand two. Oh, may she rest in um, peace. Dare I ask, Left Eye Lopez? Yeah. What's, what? That was her deal. Car okay. accident. She died oh. in a car accident. Okay. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> all right. Well, there, well we're she, learning all kinds she, of things today. I I know a lot of a lot about a little bit about a lot of different things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, jack of all trades. <laughs> there you go. Why did she cover her left eye? Do you know that? The story goes no, that somebody I once don't. told her that her left eye was pretty, and she ran with it. There you go. She became left eye after that. Wow. <laughs> That's remarkable. Who was your favorite member of TLC? (sighs) Probably her. T-Boz, Chili, Left Eye. Left Eye. Yeah. My and then how about how about uh, the Spice Girls? Not a big Spice Girls fan, John. Mm. Oh, his favorite Spice Girl is Posh. I know that. Which one's Posh? Right, Victoria Beckham. Okay, yeah, gotta be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's all I know. That's it. He doesn't even know the others. I do too. Leave it here. You got the bald face pop truth. Interesting bit of news today coming out of uh, the Pacific Northwest. No, it's not the release of the Jeffrey Epstein list. That thing has uh, been way hyped. It's it's cooked, man. Like, just release it already, right? What are they waiting for? Uh, I think it got delayed now. Why? I don't know. Somebody's suing? I think because there's people on the list that are desperately not wanting their names to be released. <laughs> well. There's 200 people supposedly on that list, and there's some, there's a few that have, you know, convinced a judge to accept their appeal that they're not, their name not be released. Why? On what I don't ground? know. On what grounds? I don't know. We need what? to get Judge Gary Leiby on the show to talk about it. <laughs> The uh, Whitman County Superior uh, Courthouse uh, got some news today. Libby announced he's retiring. Really? He's not going to seek re-election. He's 72. <laughs> I texted with him a little bit. He's the judge who ruled in favor of Oregon State, Washington State. I texted with him and invited him on the show today. He said he had to check the judge's rules to see if he could do it. And then he found out that uh, technically the Oregon State, Washington State case is not closed. So he's not allowed to make a public appearance and make statements like that mm. about it. So he says when the case is officially closed, yeah, he's coming on the show. Look at that. Not violating the bar press guidelines even to the end. That's why, you know, 72, he's, you know, he's, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, the, the Supreme Court in the state of Washington backed him. Mm-hmm. They basically just said he knows what he's doing. Yeah. You know, that has to be like I, I've never talked to a judge about it. 
Like I had a, when I was growing up, my uh, one of my friends, my classmates, you know, I, I was in kind of a small town, but his dad was the judge. Okay. Okay. Helpful. And 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 they lived on a they lived on a hill. It was almost like out of a oh, cartoon. I've seen that hill. Yeah. You pointed that. Yeah, hill that's where the judge lived. Yeah. You know. Yeah, people would drive by there and go, that's where the judge lived. Right. You know, that's, they'd say stuff like that in our town. Right. But um, I know that uh, one time I appeared in front of that judge. And, and by the way, his son, Jeff, was on my Little League team. Uh-huh. We were friends. We are yeah. classmates and friends. Okay. And I had to appear in front of his dad when I was like 18 or 19 because I had had a speeding ticket or something. Mm-hmm. And I went to court and his dad looked at me and he said, you're a menace to society. Case dismissed. But that was a case, I think, of a judge going, I know that kid. He's a good kid. Huh. You know? Yeah. And so uh, so I know a judge, but I, it's not a call I'm going to make. You know, I'm not going to call him and be like, hey, judge, does, uh, does it validate you when you have a ruling and then somebody appeals it or wants to appeal it, take it to the state Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court goes, nah, there's nothing to see here. The judge got it right. Yeah. Do you think Judge Gary Leiby... When he heard that the Supreme Court in the state of Washington said, we're not going to review this case, we're not even going to hear testimony on it, do you think he kind of did a little victory dance? Like, hey, I got it right. I know what I'm doing. I'm 72, and I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you think. I mean, you know, it's better than the opposite. Like, I don't think any judge wants their ruling uh, reviewed like that. Yeah, because it's kind of like publicly questioning you. Sure. You know? But the law is funny that way. It's like, you know the different interpretations of the law, right? Well, I think he I I don't know. I think he did it. I think he did a really good job uh, in in part because I just I was talking to attorneys on both sides mm-hmm. during that whole process. And I found that my phone calls with the attorneys on Oregon State and Washington State side were very simple calls. Okay. Here's the evidence. Yeah. There's a mountain of it. Right. Right? This is what happened. UCLA and U- USC left. They were not allowed to be on the board. Colorado left. They were not allowed to be on the board. Then when everybody else left, they went, hey, we should be on the board still. Like, mm-hmm. here's the evidence, right. you know? Bang, present it. And then my conversations with the attorneys on the other side were much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an interpretation in the bylaws. Maybe it wasn't correctly interpreted in the very beginning. And I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, and I felt like, uh, you know. But that was reflected in court. Yeah. It was reflected in the arguments, and it was reflected in the exhibits that they presented yeah. to court. Yeah, and I thought... It was interesting just to kind of watch the judge be in that position. Yeah. And, you know, I could tell when I was in court that day where he was going to go with it. Mm-hmm. You could just tell by the questions he was asking. Yeah. You know, he had he had a lot more questions for the uh, 10 departing schools mm-hmm. than he did for Oregon State and Washington State. Now, it's interesting because I tweeted this morning, Judge, judge Gary Libby's retiring. And then the mentions. Did you see the mentions? No, I didn't. The mentions are a lot of Washington State and Oregon State fans going name Libby field name your field after him (laughs) like you know the good judge deserves it well done like a lot of you know congratulatory back patting from the washington state and oregon state fans i think it's kind of funny Mm, that is funny well there you have it so judge judge gary Libby hanging it up at 72 is that the right age to retire feels like a little late you know if you love your job really yeah I guess if you're sure. a small town judge and you like being a small town judge, 72 is not so bad, you know. Well, and he gets to go out having made a fairly important ruling, you know. Kind of mic dropped it. Got to think that that stacks up pretty high in his list of uh, decisions over time. I talked to him though prior to the uh, prior to the verdict and wrote about him, 
And I got this sense that this is a high-profile thing to him, but I got the sense that he just takes his job really seriously. He, mm-hmm. he brought up the fact that he's he had a capital murder case just this last year. And he is a um, what they call a visiting judge. Okay. Because sometimes in those small counties, because you know he's in Colfax. Yeah. So if you're in Colfax and there's a murder, you don't you have a problem because you have a problem with a jury pool, mm-hmm. small town. Yeah. And you have a problem with a judge who might know, <laughs> or might have a connection to either the assailant or the you know the the, the victim. Yeah. And so a lot of times the judges will preside on cases in neighboring counties right so he said he goes he was doing a he was doing what they call a visiting judge Mm -hmm. and uh especially with the pandemic it became very easy because they just they just zoomed Mm. you know and uh but anyway he talked about this capital murder case and he said you know he had to sentence a person to prison Mm -hmm. for murder Mm -hmm. and then he got a uh letter from the parents of the person he sentenced saying we felt like you were too harsh on our kid. Hmm. And he told me, he said, I wanted to write him back, but it's not ethical for me to write them back. I had, like, things I wanted to tell them hmm. about, you know, the case and why I did what I did. He said, but that's part of being the judge is you have to make your ruling, and then you kind of have to sit back and go, that's the ruling. It speaks for itself. Everything that I have to say about it is in is in the written uh, disposition. Could you do it? Could you be a judge? Could I, you have, like... The fate of someone's life in your hands, no, or uh, really more importantly, justice. I wouldn't want like to that. do it. I I think I think the uh, part of the um, joy in my job is that I am often reminded that it's the toy factory of life. Mm-hmm. It does it hasn't felt like it in the last two years with all this <laughs> garbage going on and realignment <laughs> and the money involved in it now and name image likeness and yeah. agents controlling the transfer portal and all this garbage that we see it hasn't you know i think listeners probably relate to that i think you're you're nodding your head as you hear me talk about it because mm-hmm. sports is supposed to be our diversion it's supposed to be our escape it's supposed to be games and fun and you know yeah i'm supposed to pretend like you know i'm taking it more serious than everybody that coach has to go he hasn't won enough games you know mm-hmm. but it's i'm often like i will step back and go it's not war it's not taxes it's not death it's you know when when I think there have been times in the last couple of years where you've had to remind yourself to look for the joy, yeah, you know, yeah, to find the joy and like I know you'll f- fall into like a a trend of like writing a certain number of stories about the business of sports and then it's almost like you'll have an allergic reaction to it because you're like oh my gosh I can't I need I got I yeah. gotta go find something that is that is the essence of sports and not, you know, the industry of sports. Well, that was like during the pandemic when every story and every radio show and everything started to be about the same, you know, sad story over and over. We start to have to look for why you became a sports fan in the first place. Mm -hmm. Who was your first team? Why do you root for the teams you root for? And you got to kind of remember why you're a fan. And I think that's important. So, no, I wouldn't. I don't think I would want to be in the robe on the bench. And plus, did you see in Vegas today some judge denied parole and the guy jumped over the thing at her and tackled her like no good quite an athlete (laughs) we have a lot to talk about on this show i never run out of things to talk about i always leave the show and there's like you know you always hear movie people oh the the good scenes we left so many good scenes on the cutting room floor you should see the cutting room floor over here spielberg what the cutting room floor is just 
the conversations that you continue to have in the course of your day. In the commercial break? With me. Yeah. And others. Well, I, uh, it was funny because we were just talking the other day about the time that we, uh, we met Dr. Wayne Dyer. Remember that one? Yeah. You remember that story? <laughs> Do you know who Dr. Wayne Dyer is, Stephen? Uh, no, I do not. Well, I didn't either. And neither did I. And uh, come to find out, we were on a trip to Hawaii. It must have been like 2014. Okay, so it's like like a decade ago. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, it is. And we were in Maui. And we were staying on, uh, it was one of these trips that All About Hawaii had sent us on. Yeah. And we were, you know, we were, it was part of the radio show thing like we were sent there by all about hawaii and then the idea was that we were going to talk about all these great things that we did yeah it was really rough why we were in maui yeah really really hard for us to go on that trip. swam with sharks did a zip line went to a luau all you know all the places we stayed well they had us staying at this uh really cool kind of condo resort it was at the kanapali ali there it is something like that and uh not saying right that this guy wayne dyer is We're a, in the hot tub. Yeah, well, he's a self-help <laughs> author. Let me set it up. And a motivational speaker. And this is a guy who like has written a whole bunch of books, but we're in the hot tub at the at the uh condo mm-hmm. by the pool. Yeah, and he's like one of Oprah's favorites. Like a lot of people know who he is. Okay. But we didn't know who he was. No, but we didn't. And we get we're in the hot tub. Wayne Dyer's in the hot tub. It's kind of a weird thing when you're in a hot tub at a like a pool area mm-hmm. on vacation. You got a bunch of people who are Going out of their way not to talk to each other. Well, yeah, because there is always a decision point. Are you going to interact with the other people, or are you going to pretend like they're not there? And Wayne Dyer wouldn't let us alone. (laughs) He starts talking to me. He wants to know where we're from, you know, how long we've been married, you know, uh, what do we do? And he finds out, you know, you're a TV reporter and anchor. I'm a radio show host and a sports columnist. His ears perk up. And he's like, I'm Wayne Dyer. And so we shake hands and we're talking. I'm like, Wayne Dyer? Like, who is this? And he starts telling us kind of a sad story. Yeah. You know, he has cancer. And it's terminal. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of sad. Like, you know, we have this conversation. He had real peace. He seemed to talk about Mm -hmm. he had peace. He he was talking about trying to repair the relationships with his children. He has adult children that I guess he had fallen out with. And, you know, he's going through all this stuff. I mean, he's talking about his books and whatever. And I just, I thought... I'd never heard of him. You know, this wasn't uh, this wasn't in my uh, wheelhouse. Yeah. And yours either. We didn't we weren't starstruck because we didn't know he was a star. Yeah, yeah. And we come to find out this dude is like best selling author, self help books, all these books. And the other thing is, you know, he left a stack of his books by the door of the condo we were staying in, because we were staying like right down the hall from Which, him. come to think of it, how did he know what room we were in? I don't, I can't remember. That's weird, too. I can't remember, or maybe he asked. But they were like autographed books. Yeah. By him. All by him. I still have them. Yeah. I have one of them. Yeah. I don't have the heart to tell Wayne Dyer he's dead now, but I, I guess I could say the story. I didn't pack all the books that he gave us on the way home. I left some <laughs> of them in the condo. Oh, I didn't know that. I just took like one of them because I thought, okay, I'll see what this guy's about. And then what where it's really hit me is more recently, as I'm scrolling on TikTok or Instagram or or I'm just in the 
course of my day, I will see somebody posting a Wayne Dyer quote mm-hmm. or a or a video. Yeah. Or you know, here's some wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I was in the hot tub with that guy. That guy. He didn't seem like he had all the answers then. You know. <laughs> We kind of blew him off. We did. He wanted to be friends. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? We could have been inspired, but instead we were just dumb. Uh, just We weren't impressed. Yeah. We were just like, hey, we're trying to be on vacation here. I want to read. You know? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I don't know. Celebrity brush. You ever had a celebrity brush? I saw a video. You ever have a celebrity brush that you didn't know that was a celebrity yeah. until after you came home? Well, I saw a video from a guy. Years you know, later. you know the the some of these guys, these millennials, they have uh, stores where they sell sneakers. Yeah, it's a business. Okay, and these sneakers are not cheap, Stephen. You know. Oh no, they are. Uh, that's a, it's its own thing. It's become like some of these sneakers are like high end watches. Uh-huh. Oh, definitely. Okay, and and part of the buying the sneakers is. Some people are just collecting the sneakers, mm-hmm. and they're not wearing the sneakers, right. and they want the original box and everything that yeah. goes with it. The packing, everything, like, you know, the first Air Jordans with yeah. all the packing in the box, never worn, mm-hmm. big deal. And so I saw this video where Drew Brees, the former NFL quarterback, goes into one of these sneaker places, and he's got, like, some really cool Nike sneakers that apparently were, like, you know, given to him by somebody at Nike, okay. but he doesn't have the boxes. Oh. And this sneaker guy, because he's, you know, <laughs> he's snob. he's hip, he videotapes everybody who's selling him sneakers. And so Drew Brees is in a baseball cap. Now, I covered Drew Brees when he was in college. He's he's not a big, giant person. He's like 5'11", 6 foot. He's uh-huh. a normal, he looks like a normal person. Yeah. And so the guy didn't know this was Drew Brees, and he tells him, ah, you don't have the original boxes. Sorry, go down the street. There's one of this other guy that might take them. You know? That's so good. And then his other two coworkers are elbowing each other, like, that's Drew Brees, dude. <laughs> you just sent Drew Brees packing. <laughs> we, did, we sent Wayne Dyer packing. <sighs> Not our brightest moment. That's well, okay. But maybe he saw, maybe he was trying to impart something to us, some kind of wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But I often find, tell me if you have this experience, that people who sometimes, like the authors who appear to have all the answers, yet as we were talking to him, he didn't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. You know, he had some relationship issues with his children. Yeah. He was grappling with his mortality. He knew he was dying. He, and he died like a year later. We saw him in, in the last year of his life. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like... What, like, if you go to a marriage therapist, you want to ask them some questions about their relationships. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. everything going good for you. How many times yeah. have you been married? It, it, it's like a personal trainer. The personal trainer can't be, like, out of shape. <laughs> a barber with a bad haircut. You know, like, there's just some some jobs yes. where you got to walk the walk. At least a little bit. You know, you can't be a church pastor and also be hanging out, you know, at, at bars and strip clubs. You know what I mean? Like, there's just some jobs where you have to walk the walk. And Wayne Dyer, I, I'm pretty sure he was walking the walk, but I also think there was a little bit of salesmanship to what he was doing. Clearly, yeah. he's dropping his books off at our door once he figures out, oh, there's a radio show host, and I'm going to sell some books. Yeah. And here we are talking about him all these years later. Yeah. So, he, Wayne Dyer, you won. Okay. <laughs> You won. Your legacy lives Th- that, on. That investment you made in the hot tub at the Kanapali Ali condominium, 
is pay it off 10 years later. All right, let's get to the five at five. The five at five. Number one. Uh, Bo Nix accepting an invitation to the 2024 Senior Bowl. I didn't even know this thing existed. Um, but that's just me. So this is the annual affair featuring the top seniors from across college football, an opportunity to scout talent ahead of the NFL draft. Is this significant that he's going to play in this? It's interesting because you don't see the top, top players playing in these games. And it kind of, maybe it underscores a little bit the reasons why Bo Nix played in the Fiesta Bowl. You know, you have like Caleb Williams, Michael Penix, Jaden Daniels, the the top QBs in college football will forego these games because I can get hurt. I can only hurt my draft stock. So it tells me that Bo Nix feels like he has something to gain by showing up, meeting scouts, throwing in front of scouts, letting people see who he is. So, you know, and, and again, let's go back to the Fiesta Bowl. It's a great story. Bo Nix plays in the game, whatnot. Like, we don't know. If, did Bo Nix get a bonus, an IL bonus for playing in the game? We don't know. We may never find that out. But I think here he is playing in the Senior Bowl. Gives you a pretty good idea that Bo thinks he has some ground to make up in the draft. And and he can help himself by getting in front of scouts. I used to go to the Shrine game, the East-West Shrine game as a kid. I remember that, going to Stanford Stadium and watching watching the, the best college players from the western part of the United States play. Number two. go to here panthers owner david tepper throws a drink at fans and gets himself a three hundred thousand dollar fine now i didn't know this so he's the billionaire hedge fund manager who happens to be the richest owner in the nfl and he was seen dumping his beverage in anger after an exchange with a group of people amid the 26 and 0 blowout <laughs> 26 nothing. They yeah. got shut out first time in a long time in franchise history and everybody's kind of wondering now about the uh the coaching job. Mike Florio talked about the fact that nobody would take that head coaching job because of Tepper. Here's Florio. Good luck hiring someone who is viable and who has options. Yeah, it's only one of 32 jobs, but who's going to want that job if they can choose between working for a good owner and working for an owner who's way too involved. He's going to have a hard time making a great hire this time around, unless he's willing to ridiculously overspend. So there's a question buried in this, because this you know, this drink-throwing thing happened, on, I think, on Sunday. We talked about it on yesterday's show, but I think the, the further development here is how much of what you see from Tepper and the NFL deciding to fine him $300,000 and all that, how much of that ultimately weighs on the overall picture in the organization. I think there's a lot of truth to what Florio's saying, that you know when the owner is as heavy-handed and hot-headed and reactive and as uh, Tepper looks and has acted, uh, it's just symptomatic of a bigger problem that's going on within the organization. I, I said it yesterday. I think owners should have to have the record of their team as part of their legacy, not just the coach. So Tepper's legacy is a losing legacy. Mm -hmm. His his record since taking over that team is atrocious. I mean, they, they just have been non-competitive. 
and draft drafting at the top of the draft and um it's and they're what two and fourteen now two and fourteen this season he's thirty one and sixty seven since he bought the team that's his record as much as the, any coach it belongs with the owner hmm. by the way he also owns Charlotte FC in MLS and Charlotte FC and MLS let's look at their record can somebody uh, can can some soccer hawk tell me if uh, you know what? Uh, what kind of record they have had? You know, in recent years, like you. Let's look back in last year. How did Charlotte do last year? Oh, you know, they were ninth place in the Eastern Conference. So out of fifteen teams, they're ninth in the East. So middle of the pack team last season, two seasons ago, Charlotte um, ninth again. That's David Tepper. Not an exit. Not a winner. Number three. Uh, Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy says that, uh, well, they were just trying to keep up with Ohio State. He says, what, you know. What, sign stealing? Yes. 80% of the teams in college football steal signs. It's just a thing about football. It's been around for years. But he's saying that they had to adapt in 2019, 2020, when Ohio State was stealing their signs, which is legal, and they were doing it. But we had to get up to the level that they were at. And we had to make it an even playing field. Yeah, except, it, you know, Jim Harbaugh got suspended numerous games this season. McCarthy also talked about that. I can't really pick out one way that he helps me. It's just his overall presence. Just uh, being in, you know, whatever situation that arises, he's been there before. And just having somebody that, you know, could kind of, I can look to after, you know, a great play, a bad play, like the first play of the game um, that, like, I was expecting to get, you know, chewed out and all this. But with Coach Harbaugh, it was just, hey, man, it's good you got that out of your system. Let's roll now. So it's just little stuff like that where it would be, you know, coaches that haven't been in that situation before, haven't had, you know, the experience of playing in the Rose Bowl would maybe just, you know, get emotionally um, off balance and just start freaking out at their quarterback. That's not him. Not him, but also not with his team for part of the season. I think you have to weigh that. I, a lot of apologists uh, ex- explaining going on when it comes to the sign stuff. Don't break the rules. You know the rules. Steel signs the old-fashioned way by trying to look across the field and figure out what's going on. Good enough? Yeah. Number four. Speaking of Harbaugh's, John Harbaugh, after the Ravens win over the Dolphins, um, did you see this? No. He smeared blood across his forehead. Mm. <laughs> so, post-game speech in the Ravens' locker room. He gets caught up in this moment where he's telling the players he's proud of him. He looks down, notices his hand is bleeding, and says, I'm bleeding. I'm so proud of you. And then in one smooth motion, smears the blood on his forehead and says, put it on the forehead right there. That's what it's all about. That's very Braveheart. I was just going to say that I was going to cue up like a Mel Gibson Braveheart (laughs) reference as it pertained to Harbaugh. I, I think it's um it's one of those things where like some people are gonna interpret that as hey this is great other people are gonna go um that's a little bit weird <laughs> like can't why can't you be normal what's wrong with you I'm dying in your beds many years from now would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance just one chance to come back here 
and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Is that Mel Gibson's best movie? Is, Bra- so. is Braveheart Mel Gibson's best movie? Steven, do you have a your favorite Mel Gibson movie? Uh, wrong guy to ask here. Uh, lethal Weapon. He, he got Lethal Weapon. <laughs> conspiracy Theory. Never saw it. <laughs> oh, that's right. We're that, dealing with the guy. That's the hole in Steven's game. Steven, what's the over-under in the Washington-Michigan uh, game? Uh, four and a half. The over-under. Oh, uh, over-under? Uh, it's like 56, I want to say. Yeah, 55 and a half, 56. Yeah. You know that. Uh, my favorite Mel Gibson movie has got to be Braveheart. Conspiracy Theory is good. Lethal Weapon, Ransom. It's good in Ransom. But uh, I think that's good. Jim Harbaugh, blood on his face. John Harbaugh. John Harbaugh, sorry. Weird or totally inspiring? It's kind of weird. I put it in the weird category. Steven? 100% weird. Yeah, that, that doesn't get me going. <laughs> I wonder, wonder what his players are talking about after the game. Number five. What do you got? Um, I'm deciding here now. You're like Steven yesterday. Give us the two stories. Oh, well. Give us the candidates. Uh, did you already talk about Patrick Mahomes? He's going to sit out week 18 along with Christian McCaffrey. It's a good, that's a good angle. Take that one. Okay. I like that. Okay, there you go. Uh, they're going to rest uh, because they've already clinched their spot in the playoffs. So why risk injury? Lamar Jackson will sit for Baltimore. It creates a betting problem for people who wager on the game. Stephen, like, how do you handle like Tyler Hunt- Huntley starting for Baltimore and w- which teams plan for something, which teams not? Yeah, it, it makes some games really. Like, unbettable, really, because you don't know who's actually inspired to play. Like, you talk about that Steelers-Ravens game. The Steelers need to win to have a chance to make the playoffs. Baltimore has nothing to play for. So, you know, is Pittsburgh really going to go out and just dominate the Ravens? I don't know, but I I don't know how the Baltimore Ravens are going to get up for that game either. So, it makes a lot of games unbettable in Week 18. But then it also makes the ones those games that do matter really more fun. Like, you know, the Colts and the Texans are playing for a spot in the playoffs so that game is going to be basically a you know a basically a playoff game before the playoffs. If you are betting on NFL games this weekend, is the better move to bet individual players who maybe have contract incentives that are tied to receptions or touchdowns or yards? I don't think so. I think that's overplayed a little bit. I think it's also baked into the number as well. Like if we have that information, Vegas and all the sportsbooks have that information as well. So they're gonna they're gonna up those totals more than what they normally would be anyway. So I I don't think so. I don't think that's a very good angle. And there you go. Anna, anything more? We've talked about the fire. We've talked yeah. about Wayne Dyer. I, no. Yeah, we I got... blew him off. What do you got? Yeah. Anything else? I I think we have one more, right? That was five. That was five? Yeah. Oh, I that's why you were. That's why you were. Well, I do have to mention that the final score for Grambling State women's basketball team okay. in their non-conference victory over the College of Biblical Studies uh, last night was 159 to 18. That is the biggest margin of victory in the history of Division I women's basketball. They won by 141 points. That's a day one record to win <laughs> that big. Um, the SPN, uh, previous record was Savannah State over... Uh, Wesley. Wesleyan. <laughs> 155 to 26. Um, 
Wow. What's the biggest Great. loss you've ever had, John? Like, have you ever gotten blown out in a game? I remember when we, I was in high school, we played against Kevin Love at Lake Oswego. We lost by like 95 to 55. Ooh. That was like the biggest loss I ever had. Um, I, I outscored him, though. No I participated in a college baseball game where we were ahead 23-2 to mm-hmm. in the fifth inning mm-hmm. and lost. <gasps> really? I think that's even better. How? How? It was one of those games where we were so far ahead, everybody kind of relaxed. Yeah. 23-2, fifth inning. Here we go. You know, just close us out. Four more innings. 12 outs. Wow. You know? And suddenly our pitcher couldn't throw a strike. Uh-huh. And then he walked the bases loaded, and then he walked a run in, and then the coach came out and yelled at him, and then he walked another run in, and then they took him out of the game, and then whoever they brought in gave up a hit, and then another hit, and then all of a sudden it was like 23-15, and then it was like we were getting a little tight, and then it was uh, when they got it to tw- it was 23-22 in the ninth inning. They had the bases loaded and one out. I'm playing left field, Okay. I knew we were losing. Everybody knew we were losing. It was just, how are we going to lose this? And sure enough, the batter hit a ground ball between third base and shortstop that I fielded in left field. The the runner on third walked home. I mean, yeah. you know, and they you know they won the game. Actually, it was twenty three all with the bases loaded because the game ended when he touched home plate. Because I took the ball after he touched yeah. home plate and I threw it over the center field fence. <laughs> so, of course you did. That's. And then it was a double header. That was game one. No. Yes, we, we had to play another game. Oh, brutal. Our coach, between games, when we were coming in, climbed into the garbage can. He stood in the garbage can in the dugout, and he said nothing. He just stood in the garbage can. He was making a statement. It was like watching one of these artists who are like, you know, yeah. I'm going to do like a performance, performance art. Uh-huh. You know, Dale Metcalf. Oh, Bless man. his soul. <laughs> Jumped into the trash can in the dugout after we blew the 23 to 2 lead and uh we lost 24-23. I think I think that game was against Stanislaus State or Sonoma State, I can't remember which. Wow. Cal State Stanislaus, Cal uh-huh. State Sonoma, I don't know. But anyway, yeah. Um that's worse than getting blown out. I think. Yeah, you don't forget a game like that. By 150 points. 100%. That's way worse. <laughs> And then the second game of the doubleheader, it was just. Did you quiet. bounce back and win the second game of the doubleheader? No. Though it was just so quiet in the dugout. The whole like we were done, mm-hmm. ruined, Toast. Toast. ruined. All right, leave it here. We're going to talk about the Ducks and the Beavers. How do they get to the playoff? The expanded playoff in 2024. What questions does Oregon need to answer as it enters the Big Ten? What can Oregon State do to position itself, playing as a Group of Five or a Pac-12 conference member? We'll talk about it with Spencer McLaughlin coming up. Here's something I've been thinking about. You got Washington in the national championship game. Oregon twice this season. Losing close games to Washington. Lost by three at Washington in a game the Ducks probably should have won. I think even Washington knows the Ducks probably should have won that game. Lost by three in the national, or excuse me, in the conference championship game in a game where Washington looked better. I thought Washington was the better team for the Pac-12 championship game. Um, maybe Washington evolved at that point of the season. Maybe Oregon had an off day. I don't know, but I thought Washington played a little better that game than Oregon did. I thought Oregon outplayed Washington at Husky Stadium but lost the game anyway. Should have kicked field goals. Should have uh, made better decisions. Um, Oregon State 
two-point loss to Washington. Washington State, a three-point loss to Washington. Arizona State had Washington on the ropes. I, I think the Pac-12 was really good this year. I, I can come away with no other conclusion than the Pac-12 was really good. Washington's battle-tested. They'll be in this game against Texas because of that and be better. They were in the game against Texas because of that and were better off for it. Now they're in this game against Michigan, and they've got all these close victories in their pocket, and it has me thinking about next year. Even though Monday is the title game, how far away is Oregon? Can they replace Bo Nix? What are the questions the Ducks need to answer? We'll talk to about Oregon State coming up, but Spencer McLaughlin hosts a podcast. It's called Locked on Ducks, Locked on the Pac-12. He, you can also find his work at 750thegame.com. Spencer, let's talk about the Ducks and what they need to do between now and this season opener next season. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I mean, I, I, I can't get enough of college football, and it just saddens me to my core that it's going to end on Monday and we'll have to endure eight grueling months without it. The only saving grace in that time really is, uh, for me, is March Madness. But I, I, I am, uh, I'm doing well overall, and I, I think you, you frame the discussion exactly right about you know where Oregon is at looking ahead to next year and how close they really were. I've been thinking about that a lot over the last 48 hours or so as Washington – you know, I think outplayed Texas more thoroughly than they did in either meeting against the Ducks. And I agree with you. I think Oregon outplayed Washington but did not win the game in Seattle. But Washington outplayed them, uh, you know, mostly start to finish, save for a you know, quarter-and-a-half stretch in the middle of the game there when Oregon went on a 21 nothing run and took the lead. I, I think that Washington has been really good. I think the Pac-12 was I talked about this on Lockdown Pack 12 the other day. It was every bit as good as we thought it was. You know, I had some people asking me questions about, was the Pac-12 overrated? They had all, all these ranked teams, and, and then there were only four of them at the end of the year, and look how they're doing in bowl games. Like, well, first of all, they sent an undefeated champion to the playoff, and they had eight ranked teams at one point. To eight teams after three weeks of college football. Eight teams were in the top 25, and nobody else had that. And if that had happened in the SEC, you would have viewed those losses really differently in the college football world because you'd look at it and say, well, it's just a bunch of good teams beating up on each other. And guess what? It was just a bunch of good teams beating up on one another. I mean, USC, for goodness sake, with their backup quarterback, took on the team that played in the ACC championship game and beat them by two touchdowns. I mean, that's just you know one example of several as to how good the Pac-12 really was this year. And Oregon was absolutely good enough to win it, and I think it really just came down to execution on game day. They just didn't, and it's, it's really that simple. Yeah, and I think the I kept thinking about it in the Texas game because you could see it was a back-and-forth game. You know who Penix is. You know those receivers. And I thought, gosh, if you're Texas, this is not a position you want to be in because Washington has been in these games all season long against good teams, has had to find a way to win on defense, had to find a win, way to win with Penix. I mean, they just has to complete a first-down pass to beat Oregon State, has to do it against Oregon, has to get a stop. You know, they did it all season long. This is just kind of what they do. But as I spring towards next season, there's no Bo Nix at Oregon. Dan Lanning's in year number three. What questions are looming on your mind, Spencer, as you look at Oregon and the Big Ten, and what what's the first question they need to answer? How well does Dylan Gabriel fit into the offense? And I think he can do a lot of the things that Will Stein wants him to do. But I think the next question, and really it's more of a 1A, 1B in my mind, is what sort of team are you going to have around 
Dylan Gabriel because this is a guy who two years ago at Oklahoma led them to, you know, he missed a couple of games, but they were six and seven. They weren't that great of a team. He came back and they had a 10 and two year. Why? Because the team around him got a lot better. So if you give him a good team, a good defense, good weapons, a good running game and all that, I think he can have, you know, a better, uh, better set of receivers maybe, but certainly a, a more potent running game. I wasn't always impressed with what I saw from Oklahoma on the ground this year uh, at Oregon compared to what he had. He can be a good enough quarterback to get you to where you want to go. That much is clear. However, I do not think that he is going to make a step forward the way that Bo Nix did at Auburn because Bo Nix wasn't playing that great of football at Auburn. But Dylan Gabriel this past year and the season prior, frankly, when you look at his stats, but we'll look at 2023 because it's a better comparison point. He played very well. He was a high high 60s percentage completion guy. He went for over 3,600 yards. He ran for 12 touchdowns. He threw for 30. He only had six picks. That's, that's more than good enough. I don't think that he's got that much of another gear, and I think that's just what he is. And that's enough to get Oregon into the playoff and compete for the national championship, but the rest of the team has to be good enough to get Oregon there. So I think those are the two questions. Is how do you work him in, and then how do you support him? Dylan Gabriel. Who is he? What is he? Is he Bo Nix? Is he um, is he Tyler Shuck? Yeah, I mean, you give me give me an idea what you think the Oklahoma transfer can be at Oregon. I think he's going to be his own kind of guy. You know, I mean, Anthony Brown certainly underwhelmed a lot of Oregon fans. You can look back and say that that was coaching driven, and it was. But I don't think Brown was anything special. And you know, Shuck waited for a couple of years, had his shot, and showed some good things, but then didn't progress over the course of a year. But it was a COVID season. It was kind of wacky. So maybe he could have been more. And he's done well when he, you know, was starting at Texas Tech. Now he's off uh, to Louisville because they've got a young, talented guy there in Lubbock uh, going into next season who, you know, the Ducks were going to play, but now they're not going to play, of course, which I'm okay with because it means that Ducks are playing Oregon State in the Civil War. So I, yeah, I know some Oregon fans weren't as happy about that, but I'm, I'm on the side of I'd rather play Oregon State than, than Texas Tech, full, full stop. But I think that for Dylan Gabriel, you know, I think somewhere in between Anthony Brown and Bo Nix is kind of where I'd expect him to be. Maybe in the Vernon Adams camp. Ver- Vernon Adams was – I actually don't even know if I like Gabriel as much as Adams. I was really high on Vernon Adams yeah. once I saw him play at Oregon. I think if he doesn't get hurt, Oregon goes back to the playoff that season because they were really, really good. And when he was there, he ran that offense at a high level. I think that's what he can be, a a guy who can make big plays, do a little bit with his legs and uh, push the ball down the field, but just execute the offense and utilize the weapons that are around you. I I think Will Stein's got a guy who can do what he he needs them to do to put up points, but I don't expect him to be a Heisman finalist like Bo Nix. Dan Lenning has this great recruiting class, top 10 class, do you see immediate help? Do you see transfer portal help? Do you see holes plugged in Lanning's recruiting class? I, I think it's it's such a crapshoot in high school recruiting because w- when you bring in that many kids nowadays with how you can fill your roster with the transfer portal, and Oregon just earlier today, about 
30 minutes ago, uh, got an announcement from Jeffrey Bossa that he's going to return for year four, which is huge, huge for Lanning's defense next year because he's a veteran guy, second team all Pac-12. He's also the signal caller uh, on the defense. So having Jeffrey Bossa back, I think, is a big thing for for, for the Ducks. But it, w- when you put up a top 10 recruiting class, it's pretty impossible to not like what Lanning is doing from a, a talent acquisition standpoint. And I, I don't want 2024 to overlook the class that 2023 was, which was also a top 10 recruiting class and had a bevy of defensive linemen, three of whom played this year and more of whom are going to play next year because of departures from the interior of Oregon's defensive line. So I I think they did a really good job of bringing in plenty of talent. I I don't look at this roster, frankly, at any position group and think there's not enough talent. There's not enough depth. There's a glaring need there unless Terrence Ferguson were to decide to go to the NFL. We're talking to Spencer McLaughlin. You can catch him on the Locked on Ducks podcast and also read his work at 750thegame.com. Spencer, the expanded playoff, the Big Ten landscape, you're watching a Michigan team, maybe Jim Harbaugh comes back, maybe he doesn't. Ohio State certainly is going to be Ohio State. What do you see in the rest of the Big Ten, and how difficult will it be for Oregon to contend, compete, get to the playoff? I I think all of those goals are right there in front of the Ducks starting in year one. I I think that should be the expectation for Duck fans is for them to be in that conversation. And in the 12-team playoff, Oregon should be able to get in next year with the amount of talent they do have, the talent that they have brought in via the transfer portal, where the coaching staff is at. I think everything lines up for, yeah, Oregon should be able to be one of the top 12 teams. I, I don't think you can say, you know, demand as a fan, oh, got to be able to win the Big Ten. Ohio State and Michigan are really good. I don't know what Ohio State's doing at quarterback. I can't believe they passed on Cam Ward from Washington State to go with one of the young guys. It, it's kind of an old-school approach from Ryan Day to have a quarterback battle and a bunch of young dudes, but they did that this year, and it didn't work as well. But it's gone well for Michigan with J.J. McCarthy, too. But – when you look at the Big Ten, they're going to have uh, 18 teams in it next year. So I guess it's the Big 18, but that's neither here nor there. I look at that conference and say you can easily divide it up into three tiers. Tier one, your contenders. I think there are five or six schools in there. Tier two, good teams could maybe make a push. It wouldn't shock you, but eh, probably not going to happen. And then tier three, teams that are bottom dwellers or who are currently Uh, in the midst of a significant rebuild, I think Oregon immediately slots into that top tier with Ohio State, with Washington, with Michigan. I think USC can have a bounce back year, though there are a lot of physical football teams in the Big Ten, and Lincoln Riley teams have struggled with those over the last couple of seasons. So we'll, we'll see how that goes, but I would lean towards putting them in that camp. I would not with UCLA, even with Chip Kelly there. But I think Penn State's probably at the bottom of Tier 1. And I think those are your contenders going into next season. And just like with the Washington games this year, it's going to come down to execution on game days. We're talking to Spencer McLaughlin. What do you think is going to happen in Monday's national championship game, Michigan-Washington? I think Washington wins. I think you hit the nail on the head coming out of the break talking about how battle-tested they are. And Jeff Schwartz tweeted this out the other day. Nothing phases them. There, there, there's, there's nothing about a football game that bothers Washington. And they have been in every spot you could possibly think of. Having to win the game with 
uh, their defense, which I think is a little bit underrated. And having to run the football sometimes and lean on the ground game, and their offensive line is better than everybody will give them credit for. You talk about Penix and the receivers, that only works with all those downfield shots because Penix has got so much time to throw. I, I just don't think that you can consistently get pressure on Michael Penix. If, if Oregon can't and Texas can't with their defensive lines, I, I don't know why Michigan's is significantly more talented. From what I've seen, they're you know all very good, all top ten, you know fifteen defensive fronts in college football. But guess what? Washington's got the best offensive line, and and if you've got that. And those receivers, you just, I don't know how you can really slow them down. And I don't think J.J. McCarthy is built for uh, a shootout. I, I really don't. I'm not a huge J.J. McCarthy fan. He is competent, capable, solid. He's not exceptional. And Michael Penix is. And that Washington offense just puts so much pressure on, on teams to try and keep up. The only way Michigan wins is if they run for 250 yards or more. And that's a difficult thing to do, even against a Husky defense that's been just okay against the run. Oregon will play next season in conference play at UCLA. Uh, They'll have Michigan State at home. They'll have Ohio State at home, at Purdue, Illinois at home, at Michigan, Maryland at home, at Wisconsin, and, of course, Washington at home. Spencer, you can go to only one of those games. Which game are you going to? Gosh, only one? I mean... Uh, you know, as a big Oregon fan, I, I haven't been to Autzen Stadium, tragically, because of college and, and my career taking me all over the place uh, since 2017. So I, I'm picking a game that's there. Do they have Ohio State there or Michigan? They have Ohio State at Autzen Stadium, and then they play at Michigan. Yeah, I mean, the Ohio State game would be pretty awesome, but I, I don't know how you don't pick the Washington game. Um because getting getting revenge in that spot would feel really really good for Duck fans, and doing it at Austin would be uh, would be a pretty sweet feeling and environment to be at. So um, I'm I'm an old school guy, and I'm not a fan of the realignment and whatnot. I talk about it all the time; it's fascinating, but I, I don't think it's overall a great thing for the sport. And you know, you talk about playing conference games against Wisconsin, Ohio State, and Michigan. I mean, it's a tough lineup of teams, first of all. I think Luke Fickle's a good coach there in Madison and Michigan-Ohio State speak for themselves. But, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go with the Washington game, the game that you could have gotten if the Apple deal had been signed with the Pac-9 or you keep the ESPN deal with the Pac-10 or if USC doesn't decide to blow this stuff up for the Pac-12. Like, I, I'd, I'd go with that Washington game. Spencer McLaughlin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you, man. Let's see what happens Monday. Yeah, pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on. Go Ducks. There he is talking about the Oregon Ducks. I'll talk about the Beavers. They have a path to the playoff as well. Schedule will be heavy with Mountain West Conference opponents, but I'll talk about the questions Oregon State must answer next. So we just talked about Oregon and their path to the expanded 12-team playoff next season. Questions certainly at quarterback. I still need to see the defense at Oregon play better take another step forward i thought they took a step forward this year i think there's a coaching elevation or an advancement that could be made on the defensive side of the ball from defensive coordinator tosh lapoy i thought oregon had a better season in general on defense um need want to see another step forward i think they're that close to the four-team playoff i do think that 
the Big Ten presents some different challenges. I look at Oregon's schedule next season, and I certainly, uh, the games at Michigan and home against Ohio State jump off the schedule. But it's the games like, you know, at UCLA, Michigan State, at Purdue, at Wisconsin, and Washington that probably are going to make or break Oregon's season. I I think that there's room for Oregon, Washington, Ohio State, and Michigan all to dream about the playoff, but I kind of wonder in a 12-team playoff, will the Big Ten get three? Somebody's going to get left out, aren't they? USC? Somebody's going to get left out. Meanwhile, Oregon State has a little different math that is going on. Wholly different equation. Oregon State next season will play this schedule. And I just want to read out the schedule because it gets important when we talk about whether or not Oregon State can qualify and get one of the 12 playoff berths for next season. They're going to play Idaho State, Idaho State, not Ohio State, at San Diego State, Oregon at home, Purdue at home, at Cal, Washington State at home. Let's just start with those first six games of the season. This is not a Jonathan Smith coach team. It's Trent Bray. There's some questions about depth. There's some questions about the turnover. It's a first-year coaching staff. But would it be inconceivable? I'm not saying likely, but would it be inconceivable that Oregon State could start next season in those first six games and be sitting at four and two, five and one, if they really put it together? Because Idaho State, San Diego State, Oregon, probably a loss, Oregon. Purdue could be a loss. At Cal, Washington State, there feels like there's some wins in there. Then it's at Boise State, at Air Force, at Nevada, Colorado State, San Jose State, UNLV. Here's the path to the playoff for Oregon State. It's buried in the schedule. If you have one or two losses, you're in play as a potential group of five team, but certainly a team that would be I think rated a little higher than the group of fives that are normally out there because they're playing Cal, Washington State, Purdue, Oregon. They're playing a schedule that's better than a group of five schedule. I just don't know if this team, this Oregon State team under Trent Bray in year one, with questions at quarterback, with questions on the offensive line, with who's leaving, who's going to replay, who are they getting in the portal. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of chaos. There's turmoil. It's why I picked against Oregon State in the bowl game against Notre Dame. There's too much turmoil. So it's the turmoil that gives me pause because this could be like everybody could look back and say, hey, Oregon State had a good first year under Trent Bray, and it could be something like 7-5, and 8-4 because of the schedule they're playing. But I still think there's an opportunity for Oregon State if they really put it together next season if they beat Idaho State, if they win at San Diego State, if they can they can win at Cal, if they can beat Washington State, I think Oregon State looks at the last half part of their schedule and goes, hey, we could be that group of five team that gets in there among the uh, among the at-large berths for the 12-team expanded, expanded playoff. So don't close the door on that. But the questions that they have to answer, Oregon State has to answer a question at quarterback. It has to get depth on the offensive line. Uh, it's got a running back in Damian Martinez. I like where they are there. 
I think, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself with the losses of Anthony Gold and Silas Bolden and the transfer portal, can they find another wide receiver? There's a bunch of questions. But these are questions that a team like Oregon State can answer in the portal, answer in the offseason. Maybe they're better equipped than some of these Mountain West Conference teams to put it back together quickly. Like the hire of, of Keith Hayward, the defensive coordinator, I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Oregon State has. But an awful lot of chaos on the negative side and a favorable schedule on the positive side.